AFV and Air Modeler magazine bring you the very best modeling from the world's best modelers. They also publish outstanding modeling books from people such as David Parker, Adam Wilder, Sam Dwyer and more. In addition, they also provide some of the best resin accessories and aftermarket, including 1/16th corrections and upgrades for the Daswork Stug, 1/16th Panzer IV, and the Trumpeter King Tiger, as well as many more, including some great resin maquettes for modeling your own figures. So if you're looking for a physical or digital subscription to the best modeling magazines money can buy, or if you're looking to improve your 116th Panzer or add detail to another project, go to www.afvmodeler, that's modeler with two L's, .com today to find your magazine subscription or that essential highly detailed resin upgrade. Friends, the show you're about to hear may contain coarse language, progressive attitudes about scale modeling, and in-depth discussion of technique and concept. If this is not your thing, then on your bike. Otherwise, please enjoy today's show while at the bench, on the drive to work, or while enjoying an adult beverage. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Sprue Cutters Union. All right. I am joined Sorry. today, as always, by Chris Mettings, who is talking while I'm trying to talk. Say hi, Chris. Nah. 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 And Will Patterson. What's up? What's up? All right. Introduction. Your name is? <laughs> Frederick the Entertainer. We still don't know what the fuck we're doing. <laughs> That's Tracy Hancock. He's our leader today, folks. Yes, yes, yes. By by our one-year mark, we may actually know how to do a proper introduction, but I wouldn't lay money on that. All right, Will, what, 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 what have you been up to? Come on. Well, it's been an intensely busy and stressful month. Um, as, uh, as you guys know, our last regular episode before the holidays, um, I was all wound up about uh, the imminent loss of my hard drive with 20 years of my life on it. I think a lot of people know this because I posted on my Facebook page, um, all's well that ends well. Um, I mean, you know, as long as you've got $3,800 to spend, drive savers, they were everything they promised. I mean, if you're going to have, if you're going to have any uh, situation like that, they're the kind of people you want. And not not only did they deliver 100% of my data back to me, but they gave it back to me in the original directory structure, which which was remarkable because I, you know I was I was afraid that um, they were going to give me you know 40,000 images in one big pile, which still would have been better than nothing. But I was terrified of the prospect of unfucking that mess. But uh, honestly, it's like nothing ever happened other than the hole in my bank account. So. <laughs> yeah, that's good news. Um, um, I have not honestly done a whole lot of model making. I've because I've just had other things I've had going on. Um, so the, uh, the the little Ming Hornet is languishing. And honestly, once I freed myself from the tyranny of the calendar and worrying about finishing by December thirty first, it start it suddenly started to seem fun again. So. I, uh, you know, been just finishing up. I finished up the landing gear and, 
Um, now I'm going to tackle the uh, all the armaments, pylons, and all that stuff because what I'm trying to do is get to the point where the only thing that's left is to do the main airframe paint. And so it's just nothing but pure fun all the way out. Um, and that's been that's been a struggle to discipline myself to do that because that's what I really want to do. But I don't want to find myself having done all that and then looking over at the pile of missiles and shit like that and going, think, and you're like, oh man, I don't want to do this. And then it gets bogged down. So I'm trying the reverse psychology option. But uh, the big news, I guess, sort of, is uh, that uh, I just got back a couple of nights ago, because today's Tuesday, from Model Fiesta down in uh, New Braunfels, Texas, which is right between uh, San Antonio and Austin. And that was a whole big, cool adventure. So, um, and I have lots of things to say about that, if, I, if you guys want me to. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, was that so? Will was that your first show? It was your first modeling show. Yep, yep, my first first show, first ever. Yeah, first ever. It's the best show you've ever been to. It's the best show (laughs) I've ever been to, and um, and uh, you know, because I mean, that was a nine-hour drive each way for me. It was right at five hundred miles, and uh, I did it solo, uh, which is the first time since I got hurt that I've done a drive like that by myself. And I know some people will be like, well, what's the big deal? It's just an all-day drive. Well, yeah, I just can't, you know, I, I can't fix a flat. I can't change a flat tire. If I have some kind of an emergency, you know, I'm, I'm stuck until AAA shows up. And it's just a lot of pain for me. It's an exercise in pain management to uh, be in the car that long. But I did it. And, I, and honestly, that's probably the most important part of the whole thing for me was to prove to myself that I could do that. And, um, you know, and I, it, it involves some teamwork. I have, I have a, you know, one of my ride or die buddies for the last 30 years lives in Austin. And so he met me at my hotel and went to the show with me. And I rented a, I rented a, a little, you know, one of those little electric scooter things and, uh, just about killed a half a dozen people with that thing because, uh, <laughs> as, uh, as an ex motocross guy, the first thing I did was turn the speed knob to full rabbit mode. And <laughs> I, I, I even ran into one of the tables and I banged into it and shoved it over like a foot and it was full. Yeah, it was bad. It was really bad. My finger locked up. I, I, I just, I was trying to scoot forward a little bit so that I could get a closer look and my finger locked up, and I banged into the table, and it kind of knocked it over about a foot. And then there were people standing all around, and they're like, you should, <laughs> the eyes, the size of dinner plates. It was, yeah, it was, it was bad. You know, what, you know, what are you gonna do? I was like super embarrassed, obviously, but all you can do is laugh and say, okay, well, that was a close call. So. I'm sure they were all like, hey, it's that guy from the internet. Yeah, exactly. To break our models, the fucker. <laughs> <laughs> yep, he's, he's, he's come. He's come. And, and you, you know, I, I mean, I, there were some people there, obviously, who kind of knew me by reputation. But, and I, you know, and in some ways I kind of felt like I was going into enemy territory because obviously we've had a lot to say on here about the IPMS system. And um, I have to say that I could not have been made to feel more welcome. Um, 
you know, I, I sort of got invited uh, personally by Rob Booth, who is the honcho for that show. And for people who don't know, Model Fiesta is one of the bigger local shows. They will typically get like 800 entries. Um, and Rob's the honcho for that thing. And he just, he reached out to me and he was like, hey, you know, hey man, we'd like, lo- love it if you'd come down. I mean, he even, even invited me to stay at his house. Just a really, really good guy. And and, and he and you know, like Dana Mathis is the president of IPMS Alamo. Uh, super welcoming. And I, and I met a lot of people, you know, from SMCG and guys who just walked up and said, hey man, don't you have a YouTube channel? <laughs> and and uh, you know nobody nobody wanted to nobody wanted to kill me that I know of so uh, you know I guess uh, I guess it was successful in that respect but except the guys with models on that table maybe well yeah maybe they maybe they sabotaged your scooter they might have who knows I actually kind of think Rob engineered this whole thing from from the beginning because he wanted me to to judge and and they got me uh, signed up in the one forty eighth scale single engine prop category. And the only reason that I could, because you can't judge your own work, obviously. And I took one of the three pieces that I took was my little 48 scale uh, Tamiya Spit. But they, they, they had almost 30 entries. It's the most hotly contested class at pretty much any IPMS show over here anyway. And they had almost 30 entries. And they split it between even number of prop blades and odd number of prop blades. <laughs> <laughs> which which sounds kind of silly, but, uh, you know, and I, I my instinct is, you know, don't do splits at all. Keep it pure. But after doing the judging, I understand now that one reason to do the splits is so that you've got enough time to judge everything because, you know, my spit was three blades, and so I was in the four-blade category, and we had, I think, maybe a dozen entries, and it took us every bit of the two hours of intense work to judge those entries and it was an ass whipping and uh i but it could not have been more educational for me because my team lead was a guy named mark schachter and some of the listeners will know who he is he has built three or four amazing pieces over the last few years you've probably seen the pictures Uh, he's done a p47 uh bubble top a spit bubble top a Hawker Sea Fury, and his entry this year is uh, was a Corsair, and you can recognize it because all the panels are open, open engine, open gun bays, everything, and his detail work is just unbelievable. I mean, it, it's exquisite. It, it's it's truly remarkable, and and I quizzed him about about it, obviously, and I and I even mentioned to getting him here on the podcast because he's he's like the best modeler nobody ever heard of. Um, he doesn't have social media. He's a an airline pilot, um, and he just doesn't have time for it. And he said he might come on the podcast, but the point is, he. I mean, it, it's just his work is just truly remarkable craftsmanship. And he's been, so he's been a multi-time national winner. Um, he's like the automatic, you know, best aircraft if he shows up. Uh, he's a multi-time national IPMS judge. So I really got to see the system in action at its most sort of prototypical level. And that was an interesting experience because um, he, you know, he's got some pretty distinctive ideas of, about what I call the IPMS style now. 
And um, so th- that was, you know, it was good. Uh, we even had a tiebreaker between he and I because we had a disagreement about what should be second place. And we had to call in the head aircraft judge to, uh, to, to break the tie. So that was interesting to get to watch that. Um, so, you know, other than, than winning anything, which I did not, uh, and I knew I wasn't going to, um, so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't butthurt about that. It was really the perfect experience in terms of just, you know, seeing the system, seeing how it works, putting myself in the headspace of the IPMS judging paradigm, if you want to call it that, and, 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 and forcing myself to look at it that way. And, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm doing a whole like video blog adventure thing where I'll go into more detail, but some conclusions that I think are important here. I have said, you guys have said, lots of people have said that there is a bias against weathering within IPMS. And having now had the direct experience as an entrant and a judge, I will say that's 100% true. My conviction that that's true is even stronger now than it was five days ago. But I will say this, it's maybe not so much a bias because that sounds kind of pejorative, but definitely a preference. I got to see it in action during the judging in my team. And that's what the tiebreaker came down to. We had two entries that were essentially equal in terms of their physical flaws. They each had one strike against them. One had a wheel slightly crooked. The other one had a, a, a slightly out of whack horizontal stabilizer. So at that point, they were essentially equal. I was making the case for the one that had a more sophisticated weathering scheme, if you want to call it that. And Mark was making the case for the one that had what, again, I call the IPMS style. No weathering, super tight paint, flawless finish. And, and that's, you know, that was his preference. And it was clear. Um, and, and, you know, you can see that in the results. They're really open about letting you know what the comments were on the back of the judging sheets. Because what we did is on the back of the sheet for our category, um, one of us was in charge of, of being the note taker, and we wrote down all the issues. Because it basically, it was as advertised, it was a triage process of going through and looking at them for physical flaws, because it is build first. That was also very much in action. And so we'd go, we'd go down um, and basically list off you know, what the flaws were, and IPMS San Antonio is, is doing a new thing, at least it's kind of a subtle change, where they make all flaws equal. In other words, a wheel that's a little more crooked than a, than a wheel than another wheel that's not hardly crooked at all is the same. And that seems like a subtle difference, but it's an important difference in, in several ways. So we basically were like, okay, th- we had one entry that had no strikes out of 12, and it's the only one that could win the class because it was the only one that was physically perfect. And 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 I got that. I you know, no I could, there's no way I could argue that. And it had flawless paint. It was again the you know, the epitome of the IPMS style. But then we got to second place and you know, you got two that each have one strike. They're essentially equal and Mark and I were arguing it from different points of view and we called the head aircraft judge over to break the tie, and he selected the one that had, you guessed it, the straight IPMS finish. So again, seeing that weathering preference in action. 
And um, on my own entries, yes, sir, Chris has his hand up. What was the reason they gave for picking the other one? Well, when the head aircraft judge came and looked at both entries, he saw the crooked wheel on, on the Spitfire that we saw. And, of course, we didn't prime him for any of that. We, you know, he had to look at him cold. Yeah. And then he went over and looked at the, at the Mustang, and it had a slightly out-of-whack horizontal stabilizer, and he saw that as well. But he said he saw a wheel slightly out on that one, which neither Mark or I saw. Uh, but that was his call, and it literally was about that much discussion. He looked for just a couple of minutes, then walked back over and, and declared the Spitfire to be the winner and uh, that was that and that you know and that's fine that's what that's that's how the system works and so it is what it is the only thing that bummed me out is that i feel like we fucked up because at that point it and this didn't come up until later and i feel terrible about this i was talking to the two contestants that were involved and i was just i was breaking down for them exactly how the decision went because they're both super good guys and both super good craftsmen, and I and, and and you know, and they wanted to know what what was up. So, the Mustang got punted out to the side instead of automatically dropping down to become the third place finisher, because we kind of got overwhelmed by events, and then started focusing on the ones we had already selected as, as our third place group, and so. What was getting hotly argued for as a second place finisher ended up getting nothing. And I feel terrible because I never thought to say that. And I needed to because it was pretty clear that there was another couple of entries that were going to get more consideration because, again, of the finish. And and I just feel bad that I didn't advocate for that. It didn't even occur to me, so... Uh, but you know, and that's, that's the kind of thing that that's going to happen sometimes with judging, but to go back to my stuff, um, the, uh, the notes on my Spitfire were pretty simple. Uh, the only, uh, it, it was two comments, uh, decals, uh, on the wing and weathering. And what was funny about the decals thing is of course they were not decals. But, you know, on, on a Spitfire roundels, they pretty much touch the edge of the aileron cutout. And mine did on one wing, but there was about a one millimeter gap nah. between the edge of the roundel. And, and look, that's a strike. I get it. That's, that is, in, you know, under the IPMS system. That's a fair call. But what was funny is that I, I asked Mark, I said, hey, man, uh, when we were done, I said, hey, man, I want you to judge my spit. I'm like this would you know this would be stupid not to take advantage of that opportunity because he's got the dude is eagle eyed, and is like I said he's an incredible builder. So I said, hey man, why don't you I want you to judge my spit. So he had two issues. One was he picked up on the glue drama that I had. I got a little bit of glue on the canopy. It leaked under my masking tape, and I didn't see it until everything was all said and done. And I just elected to polish it out because it was going to be a whole drama to change it and i never expected to put that model in a contest but he picked up on that even in what was relatively poor lighting um and that was a fair call uh but he didn't say anything about the about the markings what he did say was and your prop has some splotches on it that are kind of that i you know that and I, and I was like oh yeah that's that's oil paint rendering to show the you know variation in the tones of the black and he said oh so it was intentional <laughs> 
I was like, yes, yes, it was. Um, and then um, my F4, um, they picked up, it's got a stress fracture in the canopy and they picked up on that and that's a fair call. But my P40, um, I will go to the mat as saying it has none of the standard IPMS construction flaws because I knew it was going to the contest and I, you know, I, I made sure of that. But the comments said, weathering pronounced. So, you know, there you go. And somebody uh, told me later that they overheard a couple of the judges talking about it. And one of the judges was questioning whether or not that amount of weathering would be realistic. And the good news was that the other judge was like, no, no, you got to just look at the skill that it's applied with. But, you know, obviously that didn't carry the day. And then they said that I had some paint missing on the edge of the windscreen, which it doesn't, you know. But again, the lighting, as good as it was, because they were like stoked that their light was better than it was at the previous uh, events, the lighting was still a real challenge. Like I struggled. And they and they told all the judges, don't use your flashlights. We want everybody to be on an even, you know, even playing field. So they were like, don't get out your cell phones and use your flashlights. And I struggled with that because even though my eyes are bionic, I wanted to see more, you know, and, 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 it, was, and it was difficult. And it made me wonder, this is just a, you know, crazy speculation thing that I've talked to, you talked with several guys about, is if maybe that IPMS style hasn't evolved because it still looks good even in shitty lighting. And uh, a lot of the fancy pants weathering techniques that we love, they just don't show up. You cannot see those subtleties at all. And I am sure that to some viewers, it just looks bad. So, you know, some interesting conclusions there. Uh, but overall, uh, a great experience. I'm really glad I did it. I, you know, really appreciate those guys. And I really believe that, like, Rob Booth uh, is he's progressive. He's, he's looking at this whole judging thing and he's the secretary of the national organization in addition to being, um, the honcho of the San Antonio show. And he's got a lot of ideas. He wants to see IPMS move forward and become more progressive and get away from this. You know, you're disqualified if your wheel is crooked kind of mentality. And I, I really do believe that his, his, uh, Motives are, are in the right place, and I was more than happy to provide feedback for that. So anyway, obviously, as usual, that was a shit ton of blab for me, but I, I feel like, you know, given that we've talked about this thing quite a bit, that that's, you know, it's all relevant. So anyway, sorry for the lengthy report. <laughs> My first thought on that is when we spoke to Jim, this is what I recall, so um I, I may be remembering it wrong but he basically said that they don't judge on weathering they just judge on flaws and usually there's maybe one perfect model if that and so weathering doesn't come into it but what you're saying is reasons given for as flaws are weathering so do you see what i mean that's reasons they've given to not give you a higher position in two out of three of my entries weathering was a judge's note and the only judge's notes are flaws so yeah so it seems to me yeah they, they basically discriminate against yeah. weathering really 
Except that one guy that said, you have to judge the skill, I agree with that. You know, I mean, that's true with everyone. Well, I was just going to say, and that's what Rob wants to see. He's he's trying, He, you know, he understands that this a lot of it is an education issue. When you posted that Corsair on SMCG, a lot of people kind of bagged it a bit. Like, oh, it's just too, you know, it's too illustration style. It's not weathered enough and stuff. But again, there, you know, I was looking at it purely thinking what it took to produce that that style and how much skill it took and how much mm-hmm. work it took. And for me, that made it an outstanding model. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's weathered or not. It, it you know, it's a master model. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we should we should put those we should put a, the pictures of it on the yeah. in the show notes because it, it, it is it, it is astonishing. It's 148 scale. What? I thought it was 30 seconds. No, 148 scale. Yeah, and his, you know, like all of his detail work. And he, so, so you know, the Tamiya kit, he used the Ares resin engine, but there's nothing behind it. So the whole accessory pack, oil tank, all that stuff that's, that's between the engine and the firewall on a Corsair, he built all that scratch. And all of that wiring and, and cable, it's just, it's perfect really astonishing and and but his finish and this is why i know some some of the guys in there were were kind of harshing on him his finish is again what i'm calling that classic ipms style some people were saying it was kind of spanish school and it kind of was because he he likes to use uh, a black wash to really highlight features but his philosophy because he and i talked about it a lot his philosophy is that's what it takes to make it pop and in that lighting He's not wrong, um, you know. So no, it's not. It's not what I would call realistic. It is what I would call an illustrative style, but it's still beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. And in, and for me, the only thing that would beat it would be something that was just as amazing from a construction and risk, you know, like mechanical detail point of view, but also had a sophisticated paint finish and weathering scheme. But, but you know, then you're getting into, that's the subjective part of it. And, and at SMC, that would be the deal. If, if, if those two theoretical things came head to head, right? Actually, possibly but, in the open system, they just both get gold. Yeah. That's, that's what, what I, I would thinking. have done. Exactly. Judging because exactly. they both excelled at what right. they were trying to do, you know? Uh, Absolutely, and and that would have eliminated the whole conversation we had about the Mustang versus the Spitfire because we would have both given them a silver or a gold or whatever. They would have just both gotten an equivalent award, and we wouldn't have had any sort of debate about the style. And I and that's again why I remain a believer in the open system. When Jim mentioned finesse and he didn't know what it meant, that that Corsair is a good example. It doesn't mean weathered. Because that was built with incredible finesse. Right. It doesn't need to be weathered. It just oh, needs absolutely. to be extremely well done. Absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. Phenomenal craftsmanship. I'm done. It's okay. <laughs> well, no, it's not because now you're going to tell us what you've done. Uh, yes. This absolutely. week, I've done absolutely zero. <laughs> <laughs> I've been building the Edward A6M2, A6M2 Type 21 Tora Tora Tora. Dual boxing <laughs> with all the bells and whistles. The new uh, Edward Zero, and it is a phenomenal. It is, um, 
I'm sorry, Yana, if you're listening, uh, my friend Yana, but it is kind of an expert level kit in a way. You can put it together and paint it, but to get the most out of it, you really do need your fundamentals. You really need to pay attention to everything you're doing. And actually, I've got two big problems on it, and I'm trying to work out whether I'm going to fix them or not. Because um, under the uh, MG bulges at the front, behind the cowling, and in front of the uh, wing route at the front are two separating lines where parts come together. And I didn't just, I don't know why I didn't twig, because looking at them, it's obvious they should be filled and I haven't filled them. And it's like, do I fill them or do I, what do I do now? You know, because I'm on a bit of a time scale with it. But I just, now I know about them, I can't leave them. So I think I'm going to have to fill them, which is going to mean some very tricky respraying, but I'm sure I can manage it. I mean, that's how you learn to get good with an airbrush, you know, by fixing your fuck-ups. Really, anyone can spray a kit, you know, well, but having to fix things that have already been sprayed and then respray them without seeing where it happened takes a certain amount of uh, sweat and, and fear and uh, everything else and masking, especially when you mix the colour and you haven't got any of that colour left. <laughs> You've got to remix it. <laughs> oh yeah, that's the bad part. But that's also a place where using the using some sanding sponge in a set of gripper tweezers is your is your power yeah, tool. Yeah. That's all right. I mean, I'll do it the same way I did it originally of blending it up in very thin layers, and it won't matter really whether the paint over those cracks matches exactly to the paint around it because it'll blend out if you see what I mean, and it shouldn't be immediately. It's only when it's a clearly defined spot that it really or totally different fucking color that it really leaps out at you so hopefully i'll get away yeah. with it we'll see yeah you can you can do a lot of hiding with gradation kind of blending in it with gradation. definitely yes just blend it out i put the decals on yesterday and pulled the film off today and they performed as advertised uh well not not as advertised nice. actually because you're not actually supposed to take it off that apparently is a bit of a sort of a byproduct they weren't designed like that they were just designed like normal decals and then someone found you could take the film off so and i have to say it's a it's a whole thing well i thought the film was really thick and i think on the early versions of this it was but on this one with the film they're thinner than cartograph they're thinner than almost any other decal i've used even without a sole solution when i put the uh, Hino Maru's on, and I'll come back to that in a minute, because uh, I've got a pet beef about that. Oh, well, fuck it, I might as well just say it. I don't know why I get irrationally angry when I hear people call them meatballs. It just seems like the ultimate, <laughs> the meatballs. <laughs> it just drives me nuts when people go, yeah, the meatballs on the wing. They're not fucking meatballs, wankers. Anyway, so, <laughs> when I put it down, all the rivet detail underneath came through the decal without any solvent on it at all. It, You know, it hugged straight onto it. I did find that you have to get setting solution all under the decal because if you take the film off and you didn't use setting solution, it will bring the color with it. It'll take the decal, yeah. But if it starts to lift, all you got to do is put a bit of solution under it, press it back and push it down, smooth it out, and then leave it a couple of hours and you can take the film off again. So I rescued a couple doing that. But I mean, I don't know. It's like one of those builds where just everything goes right. It's just been a joy from start to finish. It really has. Apart from the one of the landing gear covers, which just keeps fucking falling off. But other than that, <laughs> I stick it back on, it falls back off. I stick it back on, it falls back off. Well, you certainly need a build like that in the course of, you know, the, the months and years to kind of get your mojo back and, and yeah. 
you know, it keys your enthusiasm back up after some, what I think were harder builds for, for you to deal with. Well, more work. Yeah, for sure. Also though, occasionally you get one where everything goes wrong. So the universe balances out, you know, when there's nothing wrong with the kit yet, every time you touch it, you fuck it up. So this is like the anti one of those where I, so far touch wood, I can do no wrong on it. Even when I thought the sliding canopy didn't fit, I found out it's because you get two in the kit because the clear sprue covers like four different versions and I'd used the wrong one. So even when that, it was like, oh, that's all right. <laughs> that's the proper one there. And I haven't fucked it up. So it's just brilliant start to finish. Nice. Yeah, that's got to that's gotta feel good. You You said that it really requires you to break out your fundamental skills, but I didn't pick up on why. So why, you know, what is it about it that makes you say that? You can put it together and it'll go together fine. But to get it together really precisely, it's not like Tamiya. It's not like click, click, done. To get the absolute best out of the fit, it's not... How can I describe it? I haven't needed to sand or fettle anything. It all fits perfectly. But it's not quite as positive as a Tamiya kit or a Bandai kit. Gotcha. I, I should say... That's judging it with, like, being super judgy about it, if you know what I mean. It's like 99% there. But you know what it's like when you see the same kit built by two people and it's a good kit. And sometimes one is, like you're talking about with the missile wheels and stuff like that, it, it, it's very difficult to do a kit perfectly. And your, your fundamental modeling skills are needed on this kit to get the absolute most out of it. Well, it sounds kind of like the like the main kit, uh, the, the Hornet, yeah. you know, that I'm working on where... I mean, I call it an 80% kit where if, you know, you can put it together right out of the box and it's going to be pretty cool and you're not going to have a lot of difficulties. But if you really want it to be super tight, you know, that remaining percentage is going to is going to cause you some work and it's going to require some some of those fundamental skills. And I, and I wonder if it's maybe some of those tolerancing issues that we were talking with Paul about on the last last episode as well. Actually, no, it's not tolerance, really. I'll tell you what it is. They've tried to make the very best, most detailed, precise kit that they can. And they've not tried to make it simple and quick to build. It's not a kit with 10 parts. You know, I mean, I've got the Tamiya Zero. And I I was going to do a comparison review, but like after all the shit I've had to put up with from certain people about the color, because I've I've had like private messages telling me that like, (laughs) I'm, I'm some sort of criminal for for daring to disseminate this idea that they were (laughs) gray, not fucking Brown or green or whatever. I'm not kidding. I have, I've had messages about it. Dude, the, the, the Jap, the, the Japanese aircraft guys. Well, they're not Japanese. I'll tell you that the Japanese aren't like that. Yeah. These are these are Europeans. No, I'm saying the guys, the guys that right, the guys that are that are Japanese aircraft fans. Yeah. They get more militant than just about anybody, except the Panzer Grey. No, guys. I'll be honest. I got a lot of this at Sam. I got a lot of letters like this. How dare you paint it that color? How dare you say it's an RFJ four, <laughs> not an RFJ two? Uh, I think you'll find this aircraft had slightly different slats on the wings, and your um, how dare you? print that article that doesn't point that out and this sort of thing it's aircraft guys sorry but they are compared to armor models modelers they can be ourselves and it's not rivet counting it's because i don't mind being told something's wrong there are songs about it do you know what i mean it's the way they put it because mm-hmm. i'm quite happy to know something's wrong because you know i've learned something 
if if someone like tells me you're wrong and this is why I can prove it, fine, not a problem. But when they go, how dare you ever? Literally, someone told me you're in a position of responsibility. It's you should be doing this correctly because other people look up to you. No, they fucking don't. <laughs> My ego doesn't allow me to believe we that anyone looks up to me. <laughs> I'm a modeler, all right. I'm not fucking a doctor. I'm not, you know, Fauci or something, or you know. Well, maybe that's a bad example. I'm not, you know, a, a, a virologist who's got the cure for COVID. I'm putting paint on a plastic toy. Yeah. Well, in, in scale modeling, and I, I think it's it may be unique to scale modeling where the there are people who feel like they're straddling the line between a historian and a modeler. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know that that's, you know, the case in other hobbies. But in this one, yeah, there's, there are people who are, and I'm, I'm probably guilty of it whenever it comes to Hetzers. Like I I I just know, I I know a lot about it. So whenever I see something, you know, and if it's egregious and somebody obviously is just building a model for fun, I don't say anything. Whatever. You know, I like that with Churchill's. (laughs) Yeah. But if it's some if it's somebody who's put a lot of time and effort into it and and they have missed a couple of details, then I mean I'll reach out to them and, and see if it's if they're interested in making it a little bit more accurate because the fixes are pretty easy. But that's about the only thing I'll do that about. Um, well, I, I don't. The other thing my, is I don't take myself super seriously about no. a lot of other things. Um, the other thing is that there's a lot of debate about the colour anyway. And it's, the fact is I wasn't on their side of the team. You know, I wasn't back in their team yeah. in the championship. You know, and it's like... <laughs> As I said to the guy, though, look, you know, this is my job. I've got a deadline on this. I've done the best I can with it. I'm going to finish it. Then I'm going to do the next one. And that's how it works. Now, why, why do you have a deadline on the zero? Because I want to get it done for a certain time so that it can make it into a magazine. Oh, okay. I got you. Cool, cool. All right. Assuming it's accepted. I don't want to say which magazine because I don't generally get... People think that when you write for magazines, you get commissioned to do it. You do sometimes, but that's very rare. Usually, it's just like you say to the editor, I'll do this for you. And they go, yeah, okay, great then. And um, if you deliver it and they like it, they use it. But there's no guarantee they'll use it. There's no guarantee they'll turn around and accept it. So, you know, I don't generally say what it's for unless it's nailed on, if you see what I mean. And this one isn't yet, so uh, fingers crossed, eh? <laughs> yeah. Right on. Yeah. What about you, Hancock? What are you up to? Oh, uh, modeling has been at a snail's pace. In End of the year for uh, for restaurants, you know, you've got inventory and blur, 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 blur. Just a lot of work stuff eating up some time. Um, I have... The only thing I have left to do on the Japanese tank diorama is to finish the figures. I need to paint the figures, and that'll be done. Um, last time we talked, I don't know where I was on it, but I finished all the groundwork. Tank is finished. There'll, there'll be a little bit of minor weathering once I get everything in situation um, to make sure everything's on point. I pulled out my old dragon... Biffles Panzerwagon 1B, and I got a, a 
a 3D printed set of tool clamps specific for this vehicle from FC Model Trend. Oh, yeah. They're okay. I don't think there's really a problem with the physical pieces, but there's no instructions. Absolutely nothing. You get 3D printed frets in a little plastic case and Bob Trunkle. That's it. So I've had to go back to the instructions and, <coughs> excuse me, go back to the kit parts and kind of place the kit parts and then eyeball where the 3D printed parts go, what parts go with what tools. Uh, the jack assembly is a little complicated, but that's, I mean, I think that will be ready for paint in, I don't know, a couple of weeks. It's it's almost done. And then I got to, you know, you guys were talking about how the, the Edward uh, Zero is like a 99% kit and the Ming Hornet is an 80% kit. I uh, I received in the mail this, uh, this will be probably backwards for you guys. That looks, it is, that looks uh, like a, a 5% kit. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a plank and a knife. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. It's the Avis Hawker Signet, little uh, British light aircraft from the, the limp trials of 25 and 26. I'm actually grateful that these guys have been putting out these little civil aircraft uh, because nobody else is touching them. But they are kits that need refinement. <laughs> That's a nice uh, a nice way of saying that it's got it's got five parts and it's going to take you a year. Actually, the, the parts are cleanly molded. There's no flash, which is, well, there's a little, a little flash, but nothing terrible. <laughs> Any pebbly surface a la Revel? No. no there you go. Not. Short run right. Avis can do it's it. Better, Why can't Revel? Better, it's better than the Razor Crest. Man, I've seen that Razor Crest built by uh, John Simmons. Looks fantastic. So I'm not, I'm not going to talk shit about the Razor Crest until I have one in my hands to look at. Yeah, but his skills are next level. I mean, we got to find out what he did but to make it to make it look like that. We absolutely do, but there is also a chance that what we have seen online has been, you know, some shitty pre-release, blah blah blah. I, again, like just That's po- possible. I've I've not seen it in my hands. A friend of mine's got it, and and he said, "Oh, it's not as bad as people say." Then he went back in the box and had another look at it and said, "Actually, it is." <laughs> it's pebbly. There's a lot of misaligned seams, and you know, this is going to get us into Chris's rant here in a little bit. Anyway, let, yeah, let, yeah. let Tracy finish. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, I'm just looking here, kind of ballparking. I'd say there's about uh, two dozen parts to this model. Um, a lot of these, I've built a couple of these already of, of the Avis kits. The casting is a lot better than it has been in the past, but everything everything needs a little refinement. There's the surface texture on the wings. It's like somebody scrubbed it with a Brillo pad. <laughs> is it is it resin or is it injection molded? It, it, yeah, it's injection molded, yeah. Okay. But again, like I'll, you're going to have to kind of give a little love to all 24 of the parts. Um, and I'll probably juice up the cockpit a little bit with some some scratch building, some finesse details, and the rigging will, you know, if you choose to rig it, which you, I feel like you should, but um, you can certainly build this thing out of the box without touching the rigging. It's not bad. 
It's not bad. I the last one that I built from them was the shorts cockle, that little amphibian seaplane thing. And like Chris was talking about, it was a kit that everything went that could go wrong did go wrong. Every time you touch it, something would fall apart. It was it was a really difficult kit to push across the finish line. And in the end, I made some compromises in what I consider my quality control in order to just push it across the line. I still think shorts cockle sounds like one of those complicated but hilarious <laughs> British insults. <laughs> sounds like some nickname for venereal disease. Right. That's the other thing I was going to say. Or, 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 or Right. It's a euphemism for a hemorrhoid. <laughs> anyway, these guys, you know, uh, hats off to them for injection molding all these cool little oddball civil planes from the from the 20s and 30s, which is what I really love. And I've got, you know, a mountain of old uh, Dujan resin kits that are going to require far more work than this little injection molded kit. And I've got some uh, stuff from SBS, which is beautiful. That stuff is state-of-the-art resin stuff. And I, by all rights, I should just build one of those to, as a palate cleanser before getting back into another sort of a short-run kit from these guys. So we'll see. We'll see. But that's been about it for me. Someday we should have a conversation about how they probably produce the molds for that thing because there's there's some interesting stuff there that makes it what it is and like why you see the Brillo pad marks and all that. Yeah, it's all fixable. It's all, you know, again, a little TLC with each part and and you can build a beautiful little model from it. For the volume of kits that they probably sell, it's entirely appropriate. Well, this says on the box only 500 copies. Yeah. Yeah, they're at the so. limit of kind of affordable mass production in styrene. That is, you yeah, know, that, that is yeah. that is true true short run injection molding. Yeah, but again, like I said, grateful that they're producing it. Nobody else is going to. And when it comes to these uh, civil aircraft from the the twenties and thirties, I'm one of those guys that if somebody's going to produce it, then I'm going to actually do my best to build it because it's my main area of interest and there's just not a lot of releases coming out of these aircraft. So Tom Annis is a man on a mission. Like all of us, he wanted the best from his models, and when he looked into his cockpits and found they were lacking definition, he fixed it. Not content with blobby dials, switches, and knobs, Tom knew we all deserved better, so he started designing the sharpest and best printed aircraft details you will find today, and making them available to the masses. But he didn't stop there. He found a way to upgrade hoses and lines with the highest quality braided materials. And he designed an extensive range of decals covering everything from instruments to placards to superb metallic lines and more. Now Anna's offers not only superb physical details, but outstanding digital files you can print at home. Tom Anna's didn't settle for mediocre detail, and neither should you. Go to Anna's.io today, that's A-N-Y-Z to start your journey into hyper-detail with Tom's superb range of easy-to-use and outstanding products. You'd be a fool not to.
Swad Niyama is a leading publisher of scale modeling books, and we are now excited to announce that we are also stocking Seals Models 1700 Japanese ships. These are plastic kits of Japanese pre-dreadnoughts and exploration vessels. In addition, we are selling Tetra Model PE, Yamashita Hobby, and a range of other exciting and interesting modeling items. Go to www.insidethearmor.com for more. Chris has a burr under his saddle. Uh, this week, Airfix announced their new kits. And uh, I, I'm quite well known for bagging on it. I'm not a big fan of Airfix. It's not that I hate Airfix. It's just that I get all excited sometimes about stuff they release. I buy it and I'm disappointed. And it happens every time. You know, it's like um, it's like when you convince yourself you want a burger and you have it. And then afterwards, you wish you'd have something proper to eat you know it's just like oh, it's always a bit disappointing and um but that's not the problem they announced some some big kits uh literally the 124th spitfire which looked really pretty good in the cad um but the problem i got is when these things are announced you instantly get people saying this is wrong with it that's wrong with it or i don't like the look of this or it doesn't look very detailed blah 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 and now people are listening along think yeah i, I hate that as well Oh, no, that's not what I hate. What I hate are the people that tell people that say those things to shut up. That it's, you know, stop being negative about new releases. Stop being, stop bagging on the company. Stop doing, stop insulting the kit. Well, you can't tell from the renders, blah, 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 blah. The people complaining about the kits or pointing out errors or what have you are talking about a kit. It's a product from a company. The company... I don't, this, you can't tell anything. The CAD renders, fuck off. Yes, you can. You can see what's in the kit. You can see what the parts look like. The only mystery is whether the plastic will look anything like the CAD. And usually it, it with every company, it's not quite as good as the CAD, not quite as sharp. So, you know, that's the only mystery. You can see, that's the reason the company releases the CAD. It's because they think it looks good. So if it doesn't, you're allowed to say it doesn't. They're only criticizing a product from a company. They're not like saying your grandmother you know slept with nazis or something so <laughs> just relax you know but then like having a go at these people going oh i hate people being all negative. then you're having a go at people and saying that they're not allowed to voice their opinion about the kit and that's not on now don't get me wrong there's two kinds of complaints and look there is complaints i don't like the complaints i don't like are it's the wrong scale or the wrong subject <laughs> well, if you don't want it or it's or it's overpriced that's not, that's not a legitimate criticism that's just that's just some weird spectrum need to tell people that you don't like that thing you know it's like that's well, not that doesn't help anyone but someone pointing out errors is giving information you might not like the information but they're giving actual useful to someone information so quit bagging on people who don't like new releases or who think they don't look fantastic you know, and they say, oh, it's Airfix haters. Well, there's an awful lot out there of Airfix defend or die. You know, people that see it as some sort of personal insult to them that you don't like their Airfix new release. Or any other company. There endeth the rant. <laughs> <laughs> you may reply. <laughs> well, look, I think it's I think it's a totally legitimate rant because there's just a, there's just a certain set of people, and it's not just in model making, who get super butthurt anytime somebody criticizes one of their product choices. 
because they take this as an indirect indictment of their own intelligence or their own taste or whatever it is. And, and, and it's just, I mean, it just makes you look kind of like a silly bitch because seriously, like you said, it's a fucking product. And if you like it, good on you. That's great. It's your money to spend. Do whatever the fuck you want. But to just pollute the, you know, to pollute the universe with, with your whining because somebody doesn't like what you like, come on. I mean, that's just, that's just weak. That's weak sauce. And I'm right there with you, Chris. Those people need to STFU. And, and, and you see a lot of them, like, we, you know, we mentioned the Razor Crest a minute ago. It, same thing over there. You know, you got all these yeah. Star Wars fanboys and Ravel fanboys, and they're all creaming their jeans because there's this Razor Crest thing. And the truth is, is that if the photos of the parts are any kind of accurate, it has some, some serious molding issues. And it's, you know, it's not like, well, like one guy was like, well, I didn't, I didn't experience those problems. And I said, well, maybe you just didn't notice them. And he, you know, after he accused me of trolling him, it became pretty clear that, you know, he just felt like that was stuff that he had to deal with. And that's fine. And that is fine. But to hate on the people who don't think that's fine is just silly. And, you know, I think it's, I personally, I think that, that, that bitching is the engine of improvement. And I mean, we don't know that Ravel or Airfix or any of these people are listening when we bitch about these kits and much less are going to do anything about it. But one thing is for absolute certain, if nobody says anything, they certainly won't do anything because they've got no incentive. So yay, go Chris. I'm with, I'm with you. It doesn't damage the company. Airfix won't give a... F- well, maybe they will give nah. a flying fuck. But it won't damage the sales. That 124 Spitfire is going to sell no matter what. So this fig leaf that, oh, it will hurt the company. They won't sell it now because all these people are moaning about it. Eh, fuck off, will they? Firstly, they sunk all 100%. their money into it. And by the time they tell us about it, it's already in China. Well, in their case, in India, having plastic squirted into molds. So they're not going to suddenly go, whoa, whoa, stop it, everyone. Trash that £200,000 we spent developing it. Bill in Leicester says it's shit. They're not going to do that. So why are you worried that other people don't like it? It's not going to stop you getting one. In fact, there's there's another one there you can buy because Bill in Leicester doesn't want it. <laughs> well, he says he doesn't want it, but he might buy it. He might buy it just to, the other thing just I to bag was, on it. Oh, well, you could just buy that 124 Spitfire Tamiya are going to do then. <laughs> no, I'll get the uh, I'll get the 132nd Katare because it, it looks phenomenal. You know, and it probably costs more and it's slightly smaller, but unless you're a dedicated 124th modeler, probably 132nd is going to be all right. If you're just a large scale modeler, 132nd, 124th, you know, it's not a huge, uh, if you want a big Spitfire, they're both big, you know? And the reality is that we have plenty of historical precedents with Airfix 124th scale kits, you know, going back to the Typhoon, the Hellcat to know that it's probably going to be full of parts with, you know, very noticeable molding witness lines, possibly even flash, some questionable fit, some orange peel surface texture. I mean, unless they just suddenly are doing something different, that's probably what you're going to get. Now, I'm not saying, though, that that would be a bad kit. I think, you know, I've got the Typhoon. I've just... The only reason I haven't built it, because 
when it came out, everyone built it, and I just felt I just lost enthusiasm when everyone else had already done it. But I will build it, and it doesn't bother me that it's got those issues, um, and that I've already sunk like sixty quid into it in aftermarket. Because let's face it, if you're going to do a one twenty fourth kit, probably if you're going to spend a hundred pounds buying a kit, you're not that averse to spending another fifty pounds making it an even better kit. You know, if you're that price conscious, you're buying the ten pound or even £5 now, 172nd FX Spitfire uh, out, you know, at the discount supermarket. So, you know, but, yeah, getting back on point, it doesn't bother me that someone else would criticise that about the kit and would have a problem with that. Why would I care what someone else thinks about it? You're not going to throw a fit and go cry on the bathroom floor if somebody else doesn't like it. I just basically what it boils down to is I don't like people telling other people what they can do in the hobby. You know, it's one thing to criticize a company, but to say to other people, you're not allowed to complain about a kit is gatekeeping. Yeah. Is that the sum total of your thoughts, Mr. Hancock? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's certainly other similar ways that people pipe up online about new releases that are annoying. You know, like what's the fucking point of somebody popping up on, on a, you know, a new release and being like, ah, too expensive. I'm not going to buy it. Like, yeah. That's just well, silly. Let me stop the fucking presses. You know, <laughs> this guy is not going to buy it. Everybody. What are, what are we thinking? That's not feedback. That's just your preference. So shut the fuck up. That's just, no, it's just moaning. I don't, you know, people just yeah. getting online and it's too expensive. It's, oh, the, it's wrong the wrong scale. scale. Although, I do like to educate those assholes. I do like to say, well, have you seen the company's accounts? How do you know how much profit they're making, et cetera? Because, of course, they haven't. They're just full of shit. Yeah. No idea. Yeah, it's it's not it's not like the, the margins are uh, are really great in model making, I'm sure. Well, at the, at the end of the day, we have no idea what they are. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to complain about the cost of something, then maybe there's a Ravel accounting Facebook page that you can go on to. <laughs> Show me your books. <laughs> what are your margins? <laughs> Mind you, maybe Revel USA should have showed their books. Ooh. Ouch. Ouch. Too soon for some. Yeah, literally. <laughs> <laughs> My monogram. <laughs> All right, so thus into Chris's rant. What's next? What's next is us getting back into... And sort of tying a little bow around the at least the acrylic acrylic lacquer portion of our paint conversation. And so far we've talked about oils, we've talked about acrylics, and now we're going to end up talking about something in between. Which, um, you know, there are leagues and leagues of people who, who love this stuff, myself included. And I'd, I'd love to know a little bit more about, you know, the, the Tamiya paints, the Mr. Color paints. So with that, I'm turning it over to you, Will. <laughs> okay. All right. Captain Chemistry. Well, hopefully I can... Uh, Professor. <laughs> hopefully I'm coherent <laughs> enough to say... I think this can be pretty short, but it's perfect as a way to wrap up our very lengthy and in-depth conversation about acrylics and transition us to talking about lacquers on a later episode. Because people call Tamiya and Mr. Hobby, not Mr. Color, a hybrid. And, and, and the reason is because it's kind of both. You can reduce Tamiya, for example, 
with pretty much everything from cat piss to Kentucky bourbon, and it'll work just fine. It's the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> cat piss and Kentucky. <laughs> now you're gonna make the guys over whoa, at Pep, you're, whoa, you're gonna make the guys over. You're gonna, at you're gonna get a lot of feedback for that. Yeah, you're gonna make the guys over at Plastic Bottle Mojo extremely upset. So, guys, the hate mail goes to Chris. Anyway, um, if you thin if you thin Tamia or Mister Hobby with water or alcohol or a blend, uh, because. X20A, you know, some people will mistakenly say, oh, well, that's just IPA, isopropyl alcohol. And no, it's not. It's about half water and half a blend of other of alcohols. And so any blend of alcohol and water will work for Tamiya or Mr. Hobby. They seem to be essentially the same in terms of, of, of chemistry with regard to the acrylic resin that they're made of. Um, and they both function predominantly as an emulsion acrylic when you do that, especially if it's water, because water's not dissolving any of that resin at all. Alcohol, you know, maybe some of it, but it's essentially working as an emulsion acrylic at that point. And, you know, it has all the characteristics that we know and hate about <laughs> emulsion acrylics. Um, it's not, you know, it's not quite as bad as uh, as some, but... It's still it's still an acrylic, and you know you'll have always that guy who says, "Well, it's not a true acrylic." Yeah, I mean technically hmm. maybe not, except that 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 when you thin it that way, it is a true acrylic. That's all it can be, and uh, that doesn't change until you reduce with lacquer thinner. And there may still be some guys out there who are living in caves who don't know that you can thin. Mr. Hobby and Tamia with lacquer thinner and and pretty much any lacquer thinner will work. It doesn't matter if it's the cheap hardware store lacquer thinner or if it's the fancy pants, you know, Mr. Color leveling thinner. It doesn't matter because at that point, lacquer thinner is strong enough that it actually dissolves the resin and turns it into a lacquer because that's what lacquers do. They dissolve the resin, they put them into solution, and when the lacquer thinner evaporates, you're left with a hardened resin shell. And that's exactly what happens with Tamiya, and actually it performs much, much better. I think most people will agree who have tried both uh, with lacquer thinner than it does with one of the alcohol blends. Um, You get a harder, tougher shell. In my experience, it sprays better, it atomizes better, goes down smoother. It's just like like a game changer, and uh, and that works because it's just one of those resins that can do multiple things. You know, unlike let's say you've got a a Vallejo, which is a different type of acrylic resin or a different variety. You put lacquer thinner in that, and it turns into a, you know silly putty. It, but it just comes down to those modifiers that they put in there, and that's why you can do that. So what is it about Mr. Color leveling thinner that seems to work so well and kind of, I don't know, it, why is it everybody's preferred thinner? Well, it's, I mean, people, you know, people call it unicorn tears because it is amazing and, and, and people call it that because it will, it'll, it'll, you know, you can use it to reduce um, a number of paints that are typically classified as acrylics. Like you can even use it, I think, with AK. I've even proven that you can, in a pinch, thin mission models with the stuff. Um, because again, there's a certain point where it will 
Um, it will melt the lac the the resin and and treat it like a lacquer. But Mr. Color Leveling Thinner is really interesting stuff because look, lacquer thinners typically have a common list of ingredients that include things like acetone, uh, alcohols of different types, xylene, toluene, and these are all, you know, except for the alcohols, those are all pretty hot solvents. But a really magical one is one called butyl acetate. And butyl acetate has that kind of sweet smell that you get when you open a bottle of Mr. Color Leveling Thinner. And so, oh, and, yeah. and, and exactly, right? And, um, and, um, and, um, and um. so so what they do, the, <laughs> the, the way that they control, and we're, getting, we're sort of getting into lacquers, and I don't want to do too much of that. But anyway, they control the behavior of lacquer thinners by, by varying the proportions of those ingredients. And Mr. Leveling Thinner has a lot of butyl acetate in it, and that makes it what's called a slow lacquer thinner. And it's relatively mild. So it won't melt your plastic. If you get crazy with certain lacquers, yeah, you'll cause problems. You'll get crazing. But Mr. Leveling Thinner is really nice and mild. Like if you get a little, if you get a little overspray or, or some kind of paint mistake on a clear part, for example, you can get some Mr. Leveling Thinner on a Q-tip and scrub it right off and it will not damage that clear part. Uh, I think that's, you know, kind of why people love it so much, because it has the perfect combination of properties for what we do. I have to say, for me, it's the ultimate threesome. Awesome. My airbrush, Tamiya, <laughs> and Mr. Level of Thinner. I'll tell you what, it's a menage a trois. It's good. What is the best airbrush? It is. It is. It is good. Yeah, <laughs> let's don't go down. Best yeah, airbrush. Fuck go... that. <laughs> but, but, but we should also note that, you know, so because Mr. Leveling Thinner is leveling, that's part of what it does, it's going to give you a slightly more eggshell kind of a finish than, mm. say, Mr. Rapid Thinner or just a cheapo hardware store lacquer thinner because they flash faster. They'll give you a flatter finish. So you use the one that... Well, flatter as in smoother, not flatter as in sheen. No, flatter as in sheen. Ah. The leveling part is what gives you the flatter as in smoother, right? Less mm. less, mm. less lumps and orange peel, but... but Yeah, you said eggshell, which makes me think of a texture rather than a finish. Yeah, sorry, but I meant kind of a satin finish is what I was trying to say. You'll get more of a satin finish with, with Mr. Leveling Thinner, and, and you can use that to your advantage. You know, get the results you want. Yeah, I only use Mr. Leveling. Oh, so I don't only use it with. What I mean is, when I'm spraying satin or gloss, I use Mr. Leveling thinner for that reason to get as much shine out of it as I can. Yep. And when I want a dead matte finish, I use Rapid thinner. Yeah. And I know you use a lot of Tamiya and Mr. Hobby, correct? I use Mr. Color. I don't use Mr. Hobby. Um, and I use, it's mostly Tamiya though. I mostly spray Tamiya. Gotcha. But I only gotcha. use uh, Gun Gunze thinner. And 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 Mr. Color, the differentiation is that's a pure lacquer, and we'll talk about that next time. Coco, Coco, you use some Tamiya as well, right, Tracy? Yeah, predominantly for spraying, anyway. It's fantastic paint. Nobody can argue that. I mean, they're honestly the only bitch about Tamiya paint is that it just doesn't come in a ton of colors. But that's no problem for a guy who's been to art school. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and uh, availability. Yeah. For us, like it's, you know, again, just I'd, I'd be sitting here moaning about the lack of a local hobby shop, but it does suck to 
to put your project on hold or, or move to something else because you have to mail order a paint and, mm. and wait for it to get here before you can continue. And you can kind of get around the color issue with Mr. Hobby, but that's traditionally been difficult to get in the United States anyway. I think it's a little better now, but I mean, it's, it's great paint. Lovely stuff. It's not MRP though, is it? <laughs> Your favorite. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a lazy fuck. I don't like to have to mix anything. I like to take it out of the bottle and go. But that's a different <laughs> topic for a different day. Have you tried any of the AK Real Color? I have, yeah. And, it, and it's a weird deal because initially it was essentially the same as Tamiya and Mr. Hobby. It was definitely a hybrid. Yeah. And then... Somewhere along the way, I think in the first year, AK changed it to being a pure lacquer, but I didn't really tell anybody. And so there was a lot of confusion out there. I think they had a bit of trouble with stability because I had a few jars that went really hard, really fast. <laughs> Which isn't really a problem as you get older usually, but in that case... That's, that's normally <laughs> a good thing as you get older. <laughs> yeah, so with that, I think that's a good place for us to sort of wrap up the acrylic thing, but... Hey, you know, if if listeners have questions, hit us up cuz that whole acrylic thing, man, it's just yeah, it's a weird deal. It's it's just not as straightforward and that's why we ended up having to spend so much time on it, but hopefully that helps guys understand gals, not to leave out you female modelers. Um, you know, hopefully that helps modelers understand what they're working with a little better. Yeah, obviously the short version is, you know, when in doubt, use the company thinner, the brand thinner. Um, and water seems to work with just about everything. <laughs> well, everything except well, oils, enamels, I, and lacquers. It's like when you when I mix the paint up with a brush, sometimes with lacquers, I forget and drop the brush in the water pot. You take it out and there's some weird shit going mm. on on the end of that. Mm. Yeah. Remember when they made uh, water-soluble oil paints? Still do. Do they? Yeah. Win Windsor Newton has a whole has a whole line of it, and it's again, it's an emulsion. That's it's, it's what it is. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd already invested in oil-based oil paints, so I never bothered with it. Thank you so much, Will, for talking us through the subtleties of the Tamiya and Mister Color acrylic hybrids <laughs> <laughs> well i hope it's helpful it's it's uh, you know it's is definitely a point of confusion for some guy some some modelers I gotta stop saying guys some modelers and, uh, and like i said i hope that helps yeah i think if it helps get people who were a little concerned about trying them to try them i think that's a good thing i, I think they're pretty wonderful paints and again it's up to everybody what their paint choices will be but I do like trying all these different paints, seeing how they perform, how they have their own uh, particularities and, and uses. So, again, if that gets somebody to try some Tamiya color that they've been a little hesitant about before, then that's a good thing. Coming up next, we have got a wonderful interview with Lester Plaskett. Uh, before getting into that, I will mention that uh, as we speak to Lester, we get pretty in-depth about his acrylic weathering techniques. And he did want to make clear that whenever we're talking to him about this stuff, he wants to emphasize that what he recommends is working in small areas at a time. If you're working on the top of your 
hull on your tank, uh, work that before moving on to doing kind of a similar approach in the next area. But he did want to make it clear that he does not advocate you working uh, with acrylics in in the manner that he was talking about on the model as a whole, just uh, bits at a time. Just take your time, build up an area, move to the next area, which may have been apparent to a lot of people, but we did want to clarify that before we get into that interview. Yeah, it'll make more sense as we get into it, but it is a really good interview, and I think everybody's going to get a lot out of it. And we definitely are going to post some images of the specific thing. At a certain point, we pull up a couple of things of Lester's and, and have him walk us through it, and we will make sure to put those images on the Facebook page whenever the interview is released. Hey Spreecrudders, Chris here. By now, you should all know that my favorite photo etch manufacturer is tetramodel.com from South Korea. Tetra make the best photo etch I've probably used. It's always really finely detailed, nicely etched, clean and precise with the best parts that are easy to fold and easy to use. Tetra have now added some exciting new products to their 135th and 172nd AFE lines and to their ship modeling lines, including 135th Jackal 1 High Mobility Weapon Platform Detail Upset for the Hobby Boss Kit, 172nd M983 Hempton M901 Launching Station for the MIM104F Pack 3 for Trumpeter, 172nd M1120 Hemp Load Handling System, detail upset for Trumpeter. 1700 PLA Navy Type 051C Destroyer, detail upset, also for Trumpeter. 1700 Type 23 Frigate, HMS Westminster, F237, detail upset for Trumpeter. 1700 JMSDF Maya Class, DDG, detail upset for Pit Road. And two sets of road signs in 124th and 135th for Korean road signs for that interesting diorama project may be featuring South Korean or US forces. All this in addition to their already outstanding range of armor, air and AFV photo etch and detail upsets. Go to tetramodel.com or ask your dealer about tetramodel photo etch and detail upsets today. All right, folks, if you've made it this far into the podcast, we are going to reward your diligence with a chat with none other than Lester Plaskett. Lester has been a modeling fixture for years and years and years, from back in the old days of Missing Links and the interwebs and contests and shows where he's done demos, his work with AK, numerous, numerous publications. So we are absolutely over the moon to have him here with us. Thank you, Lester, for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me, guys. Welcome aboard. One of the things that that I would like to talk about with Lester, and you guys can feel free to join in and and sidetrack me and derail me however you like, but... uh, Oh, we will. We will. It's a guarantee. (laughs) (laughs) I am absolutely fascinated by Lester's... The results Lester gets with acrylic paint. He does everything I seem to do with oils easily and in half the time with acrylics um so what's your what's your solution to surface tension lester how do you get your your acrylics to behave basically it's just good old washing up detergent or washing up liquids we call it in the uk You, you you literally have a very small couple of drops in that in solution of water and just wet the surface that you're going to work with first 
and it's all about your first initial layer of when you're using dust i'll use a really really i'll, I'll wet the surface first with this um detergent mix um let it dry off not too much so it's still got a little bit of moisture on it and then i'll start using the dust layers of the acrylic really really well thinned and just basically applying the acrylic over this this detergent that sorts out your surface tension and also it allows you to move the actual acrylic around the model so it's almost as if it's floating on top of the detergent and once you've done this first layer you can kind of just build your dust effects up on top of that after that. Do you actually go in with the, a second layer of the sort of the water detergent mixture? And... No, no, no. It only ever needs, just needs one, one base layer of it. And then what you literally do is each time you kind of put another layer of acrylic on, you let the first layer of acrylic dry. You can dry it off with a hairdryer, which really does speed the process up. And then you go back to your next application of acrylic dust and the beauty of the acrylic dust is one it dries so fast and i always found with oils that they weren't opaque enough or i wanted they always had that little bit of uh there was still a bit too translucent where dust i want to kind of get it where you almost can get a texture to the dust so you can just literally keep going and going and going with each layer as many layers as you want of well thinned the dust acrylic dust mixture and then once that's all dried off, you could almost go in with the acrylic mixture unthinned and literally put it on with a stippling motion. So you can build up um, quite big dust deposits in the corners where yeah. it would naturally build up. Sort of like uh, impasto. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like if you were using pigments, but you, you can control them exactly where you want them to be, where with pigments, mm. you, you, I don't never find I can get that kind of control. And, and also... With acrylics, if you've used acrylics that have been thinned, really, really thinned down, almost like a wash almost consistency, you can actually reactivate the acrylic. Maybe it's up to 10, 15 minutes after it's dried with a, a, a small stubby brush dipped in water and you can almost scrub away and that'll actually allow you to remove some of the um, acrylic wash and, and move it around to the areas that you need it to do. So it's not about just putting the paint on it's almost about putting the dust wash on and then taking it off with, with a, a, a damp brush, unloading the brush on a paper towel, taking some more of the damp paint off. So you're not just giving a, an actual overall coat of dust. You're actually putting um, segmented areas of dust in there if you follow the, mm. the technique. Okay, so I have a question. All right, cause, and I'm sure, okay. I'm sure Hancock already knows the answer because he's an Anglophile. What the fuck is washing up liquid? This is a point. <laughs> right, it's, it's, I've been confused about this for years. Somebody, somebody help me. Right, out. it's yeah, it's dishwasher in, in America. I think it might be called dishwasher detergent. Okay, um, if, if you're going to wash it, or maybe you're dish wash soap, dish or soap. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why can't you guys just call it dish soap? I, I'm just saying because it's washing up liquid in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Why don't we call it bog roll? <laughs> why don't you have kettles you fucking savages <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um i mean i mean the, the only problem is one of the leading brands is the uk is called fairy which is <laughs> mm. <laughs> i wasn't going to mention that <laughs> so well but hands yeah, the, those dishes can feel soft as your face so that's the uh, one you know chris all right so okay so to, <laughs> so to make sure i understand because i too am i'm like tracy i'm mystified by the voodoo that you do with acrylics 
So you're so so you're like Ooh, very good poetry. So yeah. so so so, yeah. so if, if I understood what you were saying right, you're putting down a layer of this washing up and water, washing up liquid and water. And are you yeah. working on top of that while it's wet? Is that is that yeah so the, yeah so, you, what, yeah yeah. So it's kind of kind of the same as guys who like to put down a layer of mineral spirits before they get to oil paint rendering. Yeah, yeah, and what it okay. does is it breaks up it breaks up all the surface tension. Yeah. So you can literally sure. you can spread you can spread your acrylic uh, dust mix out almost as if it is um, an enamel mix. Gotcha. Okay. So so could you use uh, flow aid same same way? Because as far as I know, it's the same chemistry as washing up liquid <laughs> i've never tried it but I, I i would like anything i suppose you, you would just experiment with it and see if it does yeah. the same job you know it, it's it's there's, there's various things across the world that are the same thing but come with different names but i just don't have it. to just go all chemistry nerd because yeah, yeah it's i love that it, there's a it's a pretty common thing all soaps shampoos uh, wind windshield washer fluid they all have to have that surface tension breaker in them and the most mm. common one is called sodium laurel sulfate and I'm pretty sure that's what flow aid is it's just you know it's again it's just a surface tension breaker it's really common yeah I, I just think you know if, if you if you want to try the technique and you think it's something that you haven't got the same thing best to experiment on something not not your normal model just give it a try on something and I think once you get a once you get kind of the hang of the fact that you you can building up layers, but the layers can be built up really really quickly because mm -hmm. of the, the the nature of the acrylic paint. You know, you, you can basically put a layer on of dust, dry it off with a hairdryer, apply another layer, dry it off, another layer, and as as the actual layers get built up, you can start adding more actual um, thickness. You know, you, you, you can go. You don't even have to dilute the paint anymore. You can literally apply it with a stippling motion, and that gives you that sort of idea where the dust is built up in the crevices or the areas where the crew figures have walked across the surface. They'll have worn a path, and, and the dust will stay in the, in more of the actual, um, more in the details as such. I think if you follow the nooks and crannies. So, so does that that initial layer of soap? get reactivated each time you add a new layer of acrylic it no it doesn't really it doesn't strip any of the paint back off or it doesn't move any of the paint or reactivate because you've actually dried the paint off with a hairdryer but what you basically allows you to do is once you get that first layer down you, you've almost you, you're painting on top of your actual next each layer is going on top of each other and for some reason it just lets you blend it more okay. you just can be able to uh, uh, I don't quite know the chemistry of it um, as much as probably what you do, Will, but it's just something that I've, I've found once I put one layer on initially, I don't need to keep repeating that. Gotcha. Well, it makes it makes good sense, and I like it because it sounds to me like it's something you could also do with acrylic ink, and I love those things. Uh, you know, there's stuff that they let you do just the same as with oils, but in my opinion, it's a little easier, and acrylic inks have a really rich quality. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't really use acrylic inks. I tend to um, a lot of the pin washes and everything I do for details always is with oil paints, um, and really the dust effects and everything come right at the very end of the model where everything would be covered in dust, as opposed to I've seen some people where they've done dust effects 
and then put a shovel on or they put equipment on afterwards where really yeah. you would find that it would all build up it covers everything, not just not just specific things. Lester, you paint your stowage after it's all attached, right? Yeah, yeah. I stick everything as much as I can. I, I stick on the model. Uh, the only things I don't generally stick on are the aerials and the figures. Anything else I can put on that can be painted in situ, I paint in situ. That seems pretty difficult. No, no, not really. I mean, it's just... Um, I think that the main thing is to get a decent undercoat on um, and then like a, a, a shading coat of, of a dark, a really dark black brown or red brown. Um, and once you've covered all your plastic up so there's no bare plastic, it's just a matter of working working away and just painting it in as 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 you see fit. You know, I, I just it's just something I've, I've, I've had so many problems before where I've, I've done all this lovely work and I've tried to stick something on and it's slipped or it hasn't gone where I wanted to go. It ended up with glue on the model or it's just not sat properly. This way I know I can get everything put where I want it to be at the construction stage and then I can just paint it and um, I know it's not going to give me problems later on. You know, I mean, I don't know if you've had the same problem, Chris, if you, with, with tracks you, you or, or Tracy, you, you put tracks together. Yeah, they're great. You've gone to you painted the model, gone to fit the tracks after the model's complete, and for some bizarre reason, they won't fit. Yeah. So, well, it, I'll be honest. I'm so sloppy. If I stick something painted onto something painted, I always get a glue mark. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, so I try to avoid that as much. And then as I have to paint over that, and it's just you're just fighting the fuck up all the way, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I like to just do everything as much as possible. Obviously, there's certain parts you can't do. You know, you have to kind of do it as a as separate assemblies, but as much as possible, I try to paint everything in situ. Even, even to the point of, um, I use a lot of plastic tracks on my kits. I don't really use the metal tracks. Um, mm. I found again, sometimes they don't fit right, or sometimes you can't get the sag right. So I basically stick everything together. Given the dragon kits, you know the dragon panthers, I'll, I'll just use the dragon tracks with them, um, and then I know they're all glued in place in situ, exactly where I want them to be. And not have to worry about it later on when I try to fit everything together when it comes to the painting. What about getting up in behind the road wheels and the suspension to weather? Do you keep the do you do that track and wheel thing separately or do you just No, no, it's all stuck together. The wheels and tracks are everything stuck on together. It's just basically um a, a good tip is to get a get a brush and for any places that you find it's hard to get into, just bend the feather of the brush to whatever angle you need to get into. <gasps> It's like shooting around corners. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My number two yeah. Windsor Newton. Oh. Well, 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 yeah. I wouldn't it's necessarily... a 2L now. <laughs> Brushes are made to be used, man. Exactly, Absolutely. yeah. yeah. I love it. I almost missed that because I was over here chuckling. I'm looking, at your, I'm looking at some of your work over on your Facebook page, and you know, you're talking about making sure that you get – you know, dust in the nooks and crannies. And, and, and that's one thing that really jumps out at me about your work immediately is that you pay a lot of attention to those natural patterns. And it really has a high level of authenticity. And <laughs> this this guy is like, um, improbable fresh mud on the roof. Are you sure? <laughs> and I, I just loved your response, you know, about uh, that. Yeah, I don't think the crew took their boots off and put slippers on before they get in the tank. <laughs> that's that's yeah, classic. I mean, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it, it's um, 
if, if, if we've all done it. I mean, you lived on a farm, Will, so you know yourself. Your boots are covered in mud. It, wherever you go, that mud that mud follows you. Um, Absolutely. The, and it takes the, seconds. It takes seconds it, for something to get totally roached. Yeah, and I think sometimes that um, a lot of people, when they think about weathering, is that they look at a certain point in a model and they, they don't really want to go another step or another step or another step. They're kind of happy in what they see. And sometimes I think people kind of take the cue of weathering from other models, not so much from actual real life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can see that a lot. And I, and I think, too, you see a, a lot of guys who will just, they'll just work off their imagination. And you can tell that their logic made sense to them, but it doesn't necessarily match the real world. And they really haven't spent a lot of time looking at the real thing or looking at reference photos. And uh, yours, you know, yours is a great example of, of, uh, of you of doing of you know of of using all the right things. I mean, it just looks real. I, like that, like that really thick caked up mud that I was looking at there. I mean, look, I've seen that stuff a million times, and that is what it looks like. Thank you very much. A, a really good tip for the mud is um, I, I use the, the AK mud products, which I, I do generally like them. But if you want to make give them an organic texture, just mix some tea leaves in with them. Nice. Yeah. You know, just cut cut the top off a tea bag, pour the tea leaves in, and you can mix it. And what it basically does, it, it, you can either have when the mud product itself comes, it's quite sloppy. But as the more actual tea bag mixture you add in there, the more it kind of becomes more organic, and it's almost like you have that situation where you have mud, but with 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 basically the the, the grass and the, the leaves, the dead leaves and everything that kind of gets ground into it, which, which you see being pulled up from track vehicles. So yeah. how did how did you get that, Lester? Have you spent a lot of time around heavy equipment or is this just something that you developed over the years from studying reference photos? Yes, yeah, it's, it's just it's just watching watching for watching basically everybody else has said um, heavy equipment on the road watching wagons as you're driving down the road, you know, pulling up next to a wagon and thinking, ooh, yeah, you know, I, that, that's an interesting pattern. It's not just a matter of recreating that pattern. It's kind of understanding why that pattern's made. And once you start to understand how the patterns are made, that's how you can kind of plan where mud would be and, and, and be a little bit more realistic as where it is on your vehicle. But I do think that a lot of people maybe build a model that they're really happy with and then they think, well, do I want to add some mud? Yeah, I'll, I'll add some, but I don't want to go to the too too far an extreme and, and maybe um, destroy all the work I've already done. Yeah, I I have definitely seen people who have built a nice, tight, clean model, and then it seems like they've decided to add mud, but they haven't added. They've just added the fresh mud, and they haven't thought about the previous layers of dirt and dust that have caked up the lighter sort of tones behind it, you know, to do this effectively, it's about layering and understanding why those layers happen. And talking about pulling up next to something and just seeing the weathering on it. I, yeah, I love seeing how the difference that weathering the, the same type of sort of effect um, happens on different surfaces. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You look at a dirty truck wheel uh, and the way the dirt is sort of ingrained onto the rubber of the wheel is different than the metal surface of the wheel. 
and you know an aluminum fuel tank for the for the truck could have a completely different way that the dirt is uh is kind of presented on there yeah yeah and, and it's basically just making a mental note of that sort of thing and just sort of thinking right what's the best way to recreate that on a model yeah and it's it's a little bit of experimentation, which which is kind of what I enjoy. I sort of think, yeah, this is a bit of a challenge. And I always think anything that you want to do with your models, it's nice to kind of challenge yourself to say, right, how can I recreate this? How can I kind of look at this and sort of try and make it as, as realistic as possible, but also keeping it in scale? I think that's, that's another thing. You know, a lot, a lot of people can do a lot of good effects, but you've got to make sure that effect stays in the scale of the model that you're building. That's something that really stands out about your work, especially when you see it in person. Yeah, definitely. It's it's just that it's just that whole look of, of authenticity. It's you know, the layers are there and the effects are there, but they're all they are. They're all nicely scaled. There's just literally nothing that looks out of place. Well, thank you. Again, um and and it's just it's just over the years, you know, you, you kind of find a technique but you also try to push one technique you don't just use one technique you, you try multiple techniques to try and get the effects that you need and um I, I think it's always good as well just to sort of have a look around what everybody else is trying and you basically take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and adapt it to, to what suits yourself yeah and you definitely can also take cues from what other people do and push your own work that way. Like one of the things that Lester does really well, in my opinion, and one of the things that I look at and I'm like, ah, oh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to start incorporating that into my work is like, he, he does simple bases that are super interesting. It's not just a tank on a, some dirt and some grass, like the, you know, I really dig the furrows in the field on the, the Sherman that just adds a real interest to that base and the the king tiger that was at smc you know you got that little slit trench and the the uh the corn stalks and everything and the angle like it just it's nice to see somebody who can make an exciting base that's not a super involved diorama situation you know and that kind of pushes me to 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 want to do something like that as well yeah, I mean, they're basically just scenic bases. I don't class them as dioramas. I don't really cast. If they have a lot of figures on, then I class them as a vignette. But I think it's just really shown the vehicle in the, in the environment it's operating in. And also it gives you the opportunity, if you're doing a, a scenic base such as that, you can basically show the suspension articulated or, or you can do something a little bit different. The Sherman, because it's got that much mud on it, it, it really has to show where the muds come from so a plane base wouldn't quite do that but then other times i quite still enjoyed just making vehicles literally on it on a plain black wooden base because i've found sometimes i've tried a scenic base on a vehicle and the vehicles got lost in the scenic base in, instead of adding to the vehicle it's almost overpowered the vehicle if you if you follow what i mean yeah it can detract from the focus of what you're trying to present there yeah yeah so you look at something and you're no longer seeing the vehicle you're just seeing a sort of a base with something on it where sometimes a vehicle just on a plane base can actually stand out quite well and, and works quite well and even doing that sometimes can be difficult because you've got to kind of tell the story of that vehicle just on that plane base 
Yeah, but there's something dynamic about what you do with a small, simple base. It keeps it from being just simple. The directionality of the furrows and, you know, it's just, there's something else interesting going on besides the vehicle, but it's it's sort of a secondary thing, but it's also rewarding to look at that. I mean, obviously with all the scenic materials not around now, doing that kind of thing, your base has come a lot more common. I mean, you must remember years ago, Chris, with Maffa, if you had anything looked like a scenic base from a competition, it was automatically disqualified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. I've, I've it's had a diorama. It's got some mud on it. It's a diorama. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you were talking about having figures on it, making it a vignette, I thought, that's IPMS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're getting it exactly there. So um, luckily enough, there's, there's a lot more competitions around now that, that kind of understand what you're trying to do. They're not trying to bracket things into um, set categories. They're quite happy to sort of let you let your storytelling and imagination flow a bit better than just saying, right, that's got a figure on it, that's a, that's a diorama, even though it's just on a plain base. Um, or even to the point of disqualifying models from competition, which I never really ag- agree with. No, just move it to the right category. Exactly. Seeing that happen a couple of times at some competitions, but thankfully they're, they're kind of becoming less and less now. The plain black base really made me think about bases, actually, because I used to use, uh, I've still got some, I'm looking at them now, some nice wooden bases. And it's all very well to have some nice wood with a bit of burl in it and everything else. But it visually, it does detract from the subject. And if you're just going to put a model on a plain base, you want to foreground the model. It's like when you take a photo. It's better to take it on a piece of white paper than a tie-dye T-shirt. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You need to foreground the model and frame it nicely. And the black bases do that perfectly. It's really neat, clean, modern. It's really nice. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, a lot of it's just plastic hard, basically. It's just the, the blue modeling form with plastic hard edges and sprayed up with a, with a, a rattle can, basically. But I do, I do agree with what you say. It does make it look nice. Don't give away all the secrets. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was the whole idea of being on it. <laughs> I mean, I've seen a few pictures of models on, um, on Facebook where somebody's had some 1970s tablecloth and they've taken it against that tablecloth and you sort of think there's a there's a model on there but it's hurting me eyes to kind of find it because of that tablecloth. <laughs> the best ones are those vinyl wipe clean tablecloths. That's, 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 like, yeah, exactly. Like yeah. Peppers and stuff on them and stuff like that. It's like, ah, you know, yeah. Yeah, and you get, you're getting all the unwanted uh, reflections off the camera and all the flashes and everything that people have used. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, it's not exactly hard to put a bit of paper behind your model. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I know there's probably some guys out there who are like, whoa, gosh, I didn't know I had to be a professional photographer. They've listened to the wrong podcast. Yeah, anyway. exactly. <laughs> I'm just, but. But seriously, I mean, if you if if you want, I mean, you know, your hard work deserves the best. You know, if you if you put it on Facebook, you obviously wanted people to see it, right? So make it, you know, make it the the focus of your photo, and especially if you want feedback, you know, don't yeah. don't yeah. make don't make people have to squint to figure out what they're trying to help <laughs> you with. <laughs> yeah, why spend weeks, months, at least days building something and then not spend five minutes? setting yeah, it up absolutely why, why do that you know why put all that effort to the model and then not bother presenting it well or even half well yeah yeah i mean you don't know people's have different circumstances you know people just um enjoy what they're doing and they're pretty proud of what they do and they want to get it out there to show people and sometimes i think it's a pretty solitary hobby as well so i think a lot of people need a little bit of encouragement from look this is what i'm doing 
great. You know, that that's that, that's the enjoyment that they're getting out of it, and that's that's really one of one of the good parts of the hobby, as far as I see it. Absolutely, it's it's nice to be professional, but there's also a, a lot of people who are just getting the, the simple enjoyment of of saying, right, I've managed to spend a couple of hours out out from all the, the workaday things that are going on to, to to do something I've enjoyed, and I want to kind of share it with people. I know, but you can get half decent results with a bit of white printer paper. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, and an iPhone, and I, or whatever you know, whatever yeah. kind of phone you use. I mean, the cameras on these things are so good now that I mean, look, I, I totally agree. We shouldn't be harshing on people when they're just trying to share their hard work, but there's just not really much of an excuse for a bad photo either. It, it's 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 it, it's just super. It's just super easy. And your photos are really good, and they show lots and lots of of, of good close-ups. And so I want to ask you about your chipping because your chipping is exquisite. It's one of my favorite topics. I love chipping, and uh, I always want to know how people are are making it look so good. Um, so, uh, do, are you using the hairspray method? Do you use do you use chipping mediums? Um, and are and are you? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, well, I mean, it's a, I look. I think our I think listeners want to know. I mean, they're going to look at Lester's photos. Which, by the way, if you if, if listeners can go to your Facebook page, right? They can see a lot of your work there. Yeah. But I think they're going to want to know how do I do that? And uh, <laughs> and are you? Last thing was, are you chipping your dust layers as well? Right. Okay. Um, first of all, hairspray chipping is if I'm doing a lot of Worn paint areas such as the T fifty five in Bosnia with the coat fridge on the back, because it's been repainted by the Bosnians, um, you do see a lot of areas that have chipped off. Um, so I would probably use hairspray chipping for that, but that's about all I would probably use it for. Um, all I do with the rest of the with the rest of the chipping, it's basically sponge and brush painted. So it, it's additive chipping rather than subtractive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all it's all done um, post paint, I suppose. Really, you know, it's all it's all done um, once all the base layers are on. Um, I just find it it's so much more controllable. And what what I, what I tend to use is um, the really really dense foam sponge. Three um, M do do some foam back sanding pads, like sponge back sanding pads, um, and the foam on that it, it is really really dense. And I actually that that's probably what I use for most of me chipping because the form's that dense. You can get really really tight, um, neat chips which are in scale. Obviously, the, the, the if you use form, the the the, the bigger the air pocket, I suppose it's called the air pocket. Yes, yeah. also the smaller the air pocket, the more neatly your chipping can be. So I, I tend to use that combined with with a with a really uh, like a smallish. Brush, you know the long. Uh, Chris will probably tell me better what brushes is, but you you know the really really long brush with a really fine point. So is it for le- for lettering? Yeah, yeah, a bit like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Side writing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and I tend to use one of them because pinstriping. That's it, pinstriping brush. It, yeah. It's got a really nice point to it, but it kind of holds a lot of paint because uh, when you start your chipping, you want it to kind of flow. You don't want to be stopping and recharging your brush all the time. And, um, well, that's a mistake I'm making then. I'm using a Windsor and Newton number seven. Right, it's like, yeah. It's constantly drying on the tip, so you're constantly cleaning it to try and yeah, get some fresh paint. Yeah, in. so each yeah. time you're doing that, you, you, you're kind of losing the flow of your chipping. 
And also, if it's semi-dried on the tip, it ruins your chip as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds like Rinaldi's old standby favorite, the Low and Cornell Number Two Ultra Round. They apparently don't make anymore. Yeah, that's the one that he always <laughs> right. had in his books, and and I noticed he said something not too long ago. <laughs> People kept asking him about it. He's like, I just, it's not special. I just found that one, and it worked good. Yeah, the ones I use are two pounds ninety five from the art yeah. shop in the local town where I live. So that that's their ideal for for what I need, and. and I think another thing with chipping is is you've got to kind of get the consistency of the paint right. You can't use it straight out of the jar or straight out of the bottle, um, but you've got to be careful just how far you thin it because if you thin it too much, it's just basically not going to give you the results that you want. You want it to be nice and tight, but the paint's got to be thick enough to hold. When you when you put that chip down, you don't want it dissipating. It's got to stay in that place that you've put it. I know it sounds a strange description. No, but... it, it makes it makes perfect sense. It makes a it makes a roundish blob thing as opposed to a, yeah. an actual jagged chip shape. So yeah. so but so wait a minute. I want to make sure that I'm getting this because I'm over here looking at this picture of your black and green Sherman from September. It's close up of the top of the turret, and. Uh, Dude, this chipping is phenomenal. I would have bet a thousand bucks that you did not do this with a brush, but you're telling me you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a sponge and a brush, and you can just basically just work away at it, work away at it. Um, but I think a lot of thing with chipping is that um, it's where you actually start the chipping from. You know, pe- people tend to be quite random with it, and I know it, I know chipping is random, but. Um, I always try to start from, say if it's going to be a Scherzen plates on a Panther, I'll always start from an edge and work from that edge and use that edge as my reference to where I move from, where a lot of people just kind of start, they'll get the sponge and get the plate and they'll just start from the middle to the edge, middle to the edge, and, and it just becomes so random that mm-hmm. it doesn't have any kind of logic to it. Either that or they go all along all the edges, even with an edge that would never have contact with anything. Yeah. And you think, how did that get chipped? You, you've got to be logical in thinking, you know, wh- where's the chip going to come from? Um, I've seen a few people where they've done, um, say, on the side of a T-34, where, where they have this massive kind of gouge as if it's been run up against a wall, going down with this massive chipping effects, which they're really proud of. But the, the mud guards are intact, so how did... How did it get past the mudguard to get to cause that much damage on the whole side, if you follow all I mean? So you've got to sort of think about things logically. If you start off with chipping from a certain one point and expand from that point, then you can always go back and add more. But it's really difficult to kind of take the chipping off once once you put it on there. Absolutely. I think, I I know it's super nerdy, but I think about chipping in terms of like, like, Five dimensions: the shape, the size, the location, the distribution, and the and the and the diffusion. And the, and that diffusion is what you really have mastered, because it tends to start at the middle, and the chips are bigger and more dense, and then it spreads out, kind of like an explosion almost. And you get these little tiny ones that scatter out. And I don't. There's not a lot of people that can pull that off with a brush or a sponge. But yours, yeah, like I said, I would have bet a thousand bucks that yours was not done with a brush. That's that's amazing. And what's really impressive about it is how you mix in a lot of really authentic looking in scale scratches. I mean, that's another one. Yeah. I think it's the scratches that make it. 
In fact, I'm going to say it now. Everyone should go and have a look at uh, Lester's Facebook page and check out his models and really pay attention to the scratches. This particular photo that I'm looking at is a masterclass. It's um, from September 21st, and it's just a close-up of the turret, of the top of the turret. And it's everything about that is just, I mean, honestly, it's perfection. Very, very, very cool. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I mean, basically, it, it's it's as you said there. You start off with your main chip with the sponge, and then you expand it with your brush. Um, and a lot of the time, as opposed to using brush strokes, you're just almost just touching it. So you're almost like using a bit of pointillism to sort of expand the chips. And, and, you, and you just start to generally join them together. Um, and then the scratches, again, it's it's the, this long brush um, with, with a really fine tip. And you thin your paint a little bit more, not too much. And then you literally are just kind of drawing the scratches out. But again, you, you, you're starting off very small. And then it, once you've got that first small scratch, you can expand it and make it a little bit bigger. As opposed to trying to do one big scratch and thinking, hmm, that, that, that's just far too much. And the, the good thing with the acrylics, again, which I don't think a lot of people realize, if they've been thinned, if you have a small stubby brush, you can dip that in water and almost... Um, take the scratch off or you can almost go over it again with a bit of a moistened brush and, and it takes the actual starkness of a scratch away you know i think people think that acrylics once you put it on it's dried straight away and you can't go back to it you, you can actually get to it quite you know if, if you're reasonably quick you can dissipate the scratches and sort of make them kind of blend in a little bit more Lester, you're not using any kind of retarder with this mix for for chipping right no, no, no. Um, just basically the, the, the dark brown chipping color, the um, burnt umber or, or the, um, the AK chipping color, which is, which is almost, I think the equivalent is the camouflage black brown, the German camouflage yeah. black brown. Yeah. That, that's basically what you chocolate kind of color. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. 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 I know some people use grays and some people you get, you know, have, have good results with that, but I always find that sort of, it's a nice kind of universal color. Um, and, and I try not to use a lot of rust stone, rust tones on my vehicles. You know, I, I think sometimes rust has its place when it's a derelict or something like that. Or it's been in a museum for a good few years, but generally, unless it's surface corrosion, um, actually heavy duty rust, I don't tend to do a lot of that either. Okay. Well, I have to say this. I have been vindicated because I, I'm, I'm surfing. I'm, I'm surfing your, your pictures over here. And there's one where, You've got a really close up of some specific chips that I was really focused on right around the uh, what do you call the hatch with the springs on it on a, on a Sherman the the loader's, the, hatch. the loader's hatch okay yeah and the guy asked you if you did pencils or a fine brush and you said chipping fluid <laughs> <laughs> so at least some of them were chipping fluid but I can tell you've got a mix in there and I mean it doesn't really matter the the, re the result is is what counts it's phenomenal yeah the the initial black to take the black off the green was was a little bit of chipping fluid but the actual scratches and chips with the actual um, dark brown mix that was all done with a brush well and I think that's a really good point is is that you don't have to do one or the other you know, mix it up according to what gives you the best result. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, again, I, I kind of like the, I like to sort of control what I'm doing. Um, that's why I, I seldom, if ever, use pigments because I always think the pigments kind of give you that sort of. Mike Ronaldo can get some brilliant results with pigments, but I've just never been able to get them to work for me. So 
I, I always worry that I've done all this work and then I put these pigments on, it looks nice. So when it dries, it's just not what I kind of had in mind. So I'd rather sort of build it up with paint and, and get the layers on there. You know, I'd far rather take another couple of days to build layers up as opposed to try and do it all in one go with, with, with a pigment application. I tend to find with pigments, the colour's too flat as well. Even if you use different ones and what have you, they tend to wash everything out and go very flat. Yeah, yeah. And they're not as in scale as paint. I mean, if you're doing dust, you can't get much more in scale than thin. Yeah, and, and what I've what I've found getting back to dust, what, what I have found is um, when you when you want your kind of kind of heavy dust layer, um, once you start um, stippling the paint on um, direct from the pot, you, you can almost get that texture to it as if it is like a fine pigment. You know, you, you can build it up and build it up and build it up. Um, and also, what I do tend to use a lot of is the Tamiya flat base. I mix that into me, to me dust tones. So I know for a fact it's always going to be a matte. Uh, but also, if, if you mix a little bit of that in, because it's chalk-based, Will will probably confirm that to me, I think, um, it, it actually gives you quite a nice texture. So that, that kind of can give you that kind of really sort of like heavy-duty dust layering. But I'm sitting here looking at something you prepared for a demo. It looks like a a set of uh, Abram side skirts painted in NATO camouflage that you you built up a lot of dust on. Yeah, yeah. Is that yeah? So are you are you building up that dust layer and everything? Is that acrylics with a sponge and brush? No, the initial um, that the initial thing what I do is I do two different methods for dust for for the actual kind of dried. You know, if something's been through uh, mud, um, and what happens is the initial kind of... Um, there we go. Yeah, that, that's... A, Sorry, can you all see yeah. that? Yeah. Now, that's actually done with um, hairspray or chipping fluid, that is. So, basically, it's given a coat of um, chipping fluid, the, the dust, what I would normally use, and then I would take that off, but in a downward motion. So, you almost get that impression of where it's um, it's been wet mud, or like a, a coating of mud and it's kind of started to dry and kind of flake off and then once that's done I'd refine that with some scratches as you've seen going down the side um, and then I would the next stage after that would be I would start adding some darker tones in there with with, with some uh, oil washes okay when we release this episode I'll put up an album of the ones we're talking about so people can follow along yeah this is a really beautiful little piece did you do those scratches Using the chipping fluid, or did you paint those scratches on? A bit of both. I basically put the scratches in while I was doing the chipping, uh, while I've got the fluid still activated, and then I kind of go back and augment them a little bit with some extra little chips and, and marks and that sort of thing. Because what what, what I would have done is, prior to doing all that dust, um, the entire model would have been finished completely with all the uh, chipping effects, everything like that. Then, then I'll go do the dust effects afterwards. So I'm not trying to do chipping effects on top of dust if, if you follow what i mean and then i just sent them what looks like the same piece maybe after the demo uh with a real heavy buildup of of mud um and since we've started talking about this piece let's let's keep going and and have you talk us through how you got to this stage right okay yeah is that that's the same piece right yeah 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 that, that's it i mean probably it might be the other side but yeah i did i did a I kind of did two, both sides for a demonstration I was doing. So what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to give you the um, the light dried mud and then it's come down to where the actual fresher mud or the heavier application of mud still there. 
Um, that's been done literally with, um, again, acrylic paints and a, a, a dark brown mixture, which has almost been sponged on, but really, really wet. You know, you know, as you unload your paint off a brush, that's actually been put on really, really wet. So you get that kind of um, almost like that splattering effect on there. Um, and then that's been followed by, um, you know, we talked earlier about the AK mud product with, with some tea leaves mm -hmm. and everything in there. That's had an e that's had the effect of that being added afterwards. So there's oh, actually can three do. three layers there between yeah. from the from the lightest to the darkest and wettest. Yeah, and then there would yeah. there would probably be another layer after that, which would be an enamel wash, being a brownish wash, and that would run between the the um, the dry mud and the damp mud, so you get that kind of graduation. Does it? Is it sort of you have that zone of um, mm -hmm. almost where it's, it's it's not it's starting to dry out and kind of blend itself in, so it gets rid of the starkness from it. And you just apply that with a brush? Yeah, yeah, just with a big brush, not not a small brush like what Chris does with his chips. Just a, a nice size brush, so I can float that in. And basically, the only thing I do with chips is <laughs> exactly, and and then, <laughs> and then stipple some, <laughs> then stipple some of the edges out, so you get that kind of the the, the, yeah. the feathering between the two. Or sometimes, what I, what I have done previously when I've done heavy mud applications, um, is I've actually put the mud on using White Squadron putty before I've actually painted it. Yeah, I've seen that on your, yeah. your stuff before. Yeah, too, yeah. so I, I just think it gives you a really good foundation of where you want the mud to be. Um, and because I'm using acrylics and I'm not using pigments as such, I've already got that kind of density of mud there already. So it, it is just literally the right. white. Any 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 putty will do the trick. Um, I just like the white squadron putty because it dries pretty quick. Um, and I, and I kind of use that on the lower hull inside the wheels where I want it to be. Uh, where it's been kicked up at the back, then once it's got paint on it, I can go back and start painting those areas. But I've already got the volume of mud there already that I need, so I don't have to worry about building that volume up. I'm just adding to it with paint, and then when I go with my mud final mud mix, that doesn't have to be as thick because I've already got the, the road map of where I need to be with it. You don't need to add the sort of bottom. No, 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 it's, it's already there for you. And it's it's always covered up with the paint as well. Before you actually start painting the model, you can look at it and see where your mud is. And if you think you've got too much, you can just pick the putty off, basically. Or you can add some more if you feel that you need it. Mm. And it's it's really just mapping out where you want stuff to be beforehand. It's just it's just a little bit of pre-planning, I suppose, really. Well, I, while we were looking over there at those, I also was checking out your whatever it is. I'm so ignorant. Tiger, <laughs> Panther. German shooty thing with tracks. German box. That narrows it down a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All I was focused on is what Tracy was talking about earlier, uh, the, where this is the one that's rolling through the muddy cornfield. Right, yeah, the King Tiger. J King Tiger. Just such a simple base, but so authentic. And, you know, giving you the farm kid seal of approval on the dried corn stalks, how did you do those? <laughs> Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, basically, I got a lot of help from Mirko Burial, um, Swedish modeler. 
Chris will know him. And I'm sure Tracy yeah. knows of him as yeah. well. Um, very, do you know very... what? I'm the only person in the world who doesn't know him. Don't you? I know of him, but I don't know him. I don't build panzers, so that's probably <laughs> Yeah, why. that's probably why. They don't build him in Hungary in 1945, but if you did, you'd know him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> they didn't have many Churchills there then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're all knocked out by then, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Mirko, Mirko is very, very knowledgeable about Hungary. Um, he's been there on numerous occasions, so he knows the landscape, he knows everything. So, um, he's, he's all. You know, I thought he was Hungarian. He knows that much. About no, him. no, he's actually Swedish, but he might as well be Hungarian to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, um, and Mirko basically sent me a load of pictures, and basically he, he gave me the idea of how he did his corn, and it's um, quite simple. It, it's literally. Painted paper, get a piece of normal copy paper, white copy paper, paint what colour you want the um, the corn to look, if you want it a bit greener, a bit browner, a bit yellower, whatever you want to do, um, and then basically draw leaf patterns in it, cut it out with a scalpel, and the actual corn stalks, um, it, it's bits of a, a brush, like a, a natural... Um, Oh, it's a kid's Halloween broom that, that one of me, one of me children had that I kind of <laughs> stole off them. And basically, <laughs> poor kid. <laughs> Daddy, where's my broom? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's on my tank. Halloween's cancelled this year, kids. Um, and, and, <laughs> and, and, yeah. And then I literally took the bristles out of that. And, and not everyone was, not everyone was good enough, but some of them were quite thin enough that they were literally, the, the, the leaves were, once they were cut out, I got a um, paintbrush handle and sort of pulled them over the paintbrush handle, give them a bit of uh, curvature to them, and, and then to literally attach them with white wood glue, uh, and then a little bit of sort of brown speckling with, with, to, with some um, like earth colours, just to sort of tone them into what, what everything is. Um, and then what, what you see around the outside of it is that's um, some of the other bits of the, of the brush. That I've just kind of like sprinkled on, and that's actually from a, a shaving brush. Hairs from a shaving brush, just cut off because of the right colour for the corn stalks, and, and then just sprinkled on and fixed with a um, sand and gravel fixer. I'm sure it's sand and gravel fixer. Really good. That's perfect. Yeah. That's got to that's gotta be very zen to, to glue each one of those leaves on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's relaxing, not. <laughs> Well, there's really no quick way to do no. something like no, that. No, and you it's know, the, you've really got to get in there. And it's the moment when you do the first one and you go, yeah, and then you think, oh, I've only got about 45 of these to go, Chubbs, and you can't wait. <laughs> I'll be honest, that's my biggest problem with groundwork. I just lose patience. <laughs> I don't want to plant a field of grass. No, no, well. I, I, I suppose you, you just got to keep going with it. You know, if, if you got in your mind what you want to do, it, it, it's a nice thing to sort of do. And um, I enjoyed it. It, it. it was good. And, and it sort of did really, I know it's a bit cliche because a lot of people do corn with Hungary, but it does really put the model in the time of year and also in the context of what country it's in. Yeah. Uh, too many people just think, oh, a bit of brown mud, that'll do. You know, and it, it lifts it color-wise, height-wise. It, it adds so much interest but without what we said earlier detracting from the uh, the main subject yeah yeah and just the incline of the base itself it goes along with the story that you're telling but it also just at a quick glance it's it's such a visually dynamic way to present it yeah yeah that it automatically sort of takes it a little bit above everybody else's it changes the look of the vehicle Every, everybody sees a vehicle flat on its tracks um and then all of a sudden if you kind of change it slightly 
you, you get a, you get a sort of a different perspective from it. But um, a lot of that really come from um, again reading books and understanding the terrain that the Germans were attacking over during that particular operation. And, and you, there's a there's a famous um, like passage where they're saying that the Germans sent three King Tigers up on this ridge line to be shot at by the Russian anti-tank guns. So they can see where the Russian anti-tank guns were. You know, that, that sort of thing, st- that, <laughs> that kind of thing stuck in my mind. So I was thinking, yeah, that, that, that's, that's something I'd like to kind of put into this model. And I think every time you do a model, you, you always got to try and put your own little take and make it, make it sort of make it your own kind of thing. Especially with panzers, I think, because they're so overdone as a subject. What's the point in doing one if you can't put a little something on it, a bit of a spin on it or something to make it different? Yeah, yeah, and, and a lot of stuff I like to do is almost try and work from historical photographs nowadays if I can. Yeah. It can be a bit of a challenge, but I think it's quite rewarding if you can get an interpretation of something. It's never going to be perfect, but if you can get an interpretation of a vehicle that you see almost in an actual um, period photograph, like the, the Panther I did in the Ardennes, that that was basically taken from a famous little bit of a, a newsreel film. Again, I got a lot of help with that from from my friends. Um, you know, a lot of people had a lot of information that sort of thing. That was that was really good for me. Um, but you do tend to be staring at a picture or a couple of pictures, and and you get to know those pictures quite intimately over the period of time. You know, you're staring at the picture, looking at the model, staring at the picture, looking at the model. Um, which, <laughs> you know, and, and it's, it's quite rewarding when you, when you can do something like that. I mean, it's never going to be, you know, you can try and get as close as you can, but you, I don't think you're ever going to make it exactly to the photograph. But it's nice if somebody can look at the model and relate to the photograph without you actually having to reference it as well. Do you find that it's easier to, to, uh, you know, sort of compose and, and get all your elements together if you're working from something that's, a historical photo, you know, and, and a factual uh, scene rather than trying to make things up out of your head to represent something like that. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I do try to do stuff out of my head. Uh, uh, I mean, there's, um, there's a T-55 with a cork fridge on the back. That that was kind of, um, that, that, that yeah. was sort of like using my imagination, but also looking at some pictures and taking some reference from one picture and reference from another picture to combine it to one vehicle as such. Um, and I did another Serbian T55 where I, I used it had um, the wheels and tyres on the turret as armour, and the, that was one picture of a vehicle. And then another vehicle, I seen one where it had the actual um, conveyor belt armour stretched across the front glacis plate. So I kind of combined the two. But I do find I work better if I've got a photograph that I can work to because it kind of keeps me it keeps me focused on what I need to do. And also, it, it sort of puts constraints on what I have to do, so I can't go too mad with the weathering, because you don't see it in the photograph, if, if that sort of makes sense. Yeah. Chris brought up a really good point that I wanted to ask you about, and that's just kind of like your your overall look and and your your style. Because I to me, you've got a distinct style, which is a really difficult thing to do in scale modeling. And uh I'm just curious kind of how you would sort of describe your style and what you're going for. And, and is there anything that you do that you feel like defines your style? I think everybody finds the style. And I think what they do is that they tend to take a little bit from what they see from everybody else. So you might study 
certain modelers who paint green really well so you kind of understand what they do so you think right i've read what they what color mixes they might use i'll try that that doesn't quite work for me but i can take a little bit of that that i know will work for me and same with with chipping groundwork you know you, you tend to it's a really fantastic world out there of modeling and there's so many so many good modelers out there and you can kind of take little bits of their technique and what tends to happen is that sort of becomes your own technique it, 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 it's a bit of a difficult one to describe but you you know i mean apart from when phil started the hairspray technique i don't think anything has really been that revolutionary in the hobby um, things have been reinvented a lot yeah. you know I, I remember some guy was telling me about um he was he'd done this color modulation oh color modulation is fantastic you know i've had highlights and everything you know and, and i've just seen this and it, it's fantastic and i said well go get shep Payne's how to build diorama books which they were published in the the 70s am i right in the 70s or maybe it's the early 80s yeah, I believe so. Yeah, and, and yeah. it's all in there. So it, it's it's sort of variations on a oh, thing. Look at Caravaggio. Yeah, you know, so it, it, <laughs> it's sort of variations on a theme. So I don't think I've consciously thought about a style. I just think it's something that sort of evolved over over a period of time. Maybe it's the best way I can describe it is trying to keep things in scale like we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And I think as you try to keep things in scale, that, that, that sort of defines what you do from a weathering and, and a, a painting point of view. That, that kind of fits right in with, with what I think when I look at your work, because, you know, Mike Rinaldi's one of his things that he repeats uh, often is, you know, with regard to scale of weathering effects, not ever having a chip, you can't ever have a chip that's too small, I think is what he said. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that a few times, yeah. And he's 100% right. And when I look at your work, for whatever it's worth, I feel like you kind of are somewhere in between what Mike does and what Martin does. Because you've got that authenticity of, of effects, your scaling is really on point. And everything is just so well executed, and yet your colors are bolder, your contrast's a little higher, but you're not like in night shift territory with your with your contrast. And it, to me, it's a really nice mix coming from sort of both directions. One of the things that I I think you can see across your work is that no matter the weathering effect, the the underlying colors never get sort of obliterated. I mean, there's, it's very they're very clear. The camouflage colors are still there. The dust, dirt is there. It's all very believable. It's, it's a, it's a really difficult balance. Yeah, and you uh, nail yeah. it. I, yeah. I think, I, I think a lot of it comes comes down to layering. I, I think I, I try to. Um, I, I'll start off with my base layer of colors. Then there's the airbrush camouflage, and then, then there's the sort of the filters, the washes, the chipping. But I'll go through quite a lot of layers to get where I need to be. Um, where I've seen quite a few people where they've sort of thought. I'll skip that layer because nobody will ever know because I'm going to cover it in mud. But you're never quite sh- or dust, but you're never quite sure because you're mud and that's got to be random. You're never 100% sure where it's going to cover or where it's not going to cover. So you've got to sort of build everything up in layers. It it takes a long time. Unfortunately, I'm not, I'm not the world's quickest modeler. But I, I always think that if, if I miss that layer, I can see that I've missed that layer or, or other people can kind of see that that layer is not quite there. So you, you saw every time you do a layer, you, you become a little bit more constrained with the next layer because you want to sort of keep what you've got, but not 
um, skimp on that next layer. It, it's got to all be believable as you build it up. I don't quite understand when I see some modelers say they're doing a winter whitewash scheme that they'll paint the model in the base colour, then they'll do the winter whitewash, then they'll start all the weathering process. Oh, you're singing my song. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what, was it giving a really good really good scrub yeah. and a repaint just before they whitewashed it? Right. Yeah, yeah. Brand, well, yeah so it was exactly. brand new, right out of the factory yeah. before they put the whitewash. Yeah. <laughs> just teleported to the battlefield. <laughs> yeah, where, where I would actually finish the model to the point of it, it would I could you could literally call it finished and put it on a base before I even start doing any whitewash effects because that whitewash was added at a certain point of the vehicle's life and then the weathering there would have been weathering on there already, scratches chipping whatever, ingrained dirt. Then you would have the whitewash being applied and this was generally done some of them, you know, was done really, really well. There's, there's some pictures of the early German war armor where it's been whitewashed, and it has been done really, really well, almost like a factory apply one. But when it's primarily late war, that was literally thrown on the vehicle and applied as quickly as you could. So you wouldn't you wouldn't take your tools off or your spare track. You would just literally cover it with, with the whitewash. Um, so all the chips and scratches and damage that was underneath would be covered with whitewash, not be part of the whitewash weather and if you if you follow absolutely and this is really really important i i, I there i hope that some of the guys listening to this are going to go back and, and listen to the last 10 minutes twice or three times because like i was looking the other day i, I noticed somebody was was moaning about you know oh, i can't get my thing to look like this other guy's thing who's really good at it um and it's it's a common complaint. I mean, I've got, yeah, probably me that was saying it. No, it wasn't. It wasn't you. Tracy gets it. It wasn't you. No, and, and, Tracy and me joking about men's things. Yeah, yeah, joke. Yeah, I should have seen. I should have seen that coming. No, it was. It was. It was actually. <laughs> it, it, was, <laughs> it was. It was. Uh, it was actually. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'll go ahead and name it. It was actually Ivan. You know, our buddy from over on the plastic posse and he was saying that about you know night shifts work and i sympathize with him i mean because ivan's work is really good no you know and 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 he needs to hear this because his work really is good but i also sympathize with his with his problem because i feel the same way a lot of times too but here's the thing you're not you know none of us are necessarily going to have the talent or, or the eyes or the creative vision of a you know, of, of, of an Uncle Night Shift or a Lester Plaskett or a Mike Rinaldi or, or whatever. But there is one thing that you can definitely do because it does purely come down to technique. And that's this thing with layers and and separation of effects. If you, you know, yeah. if you study the work of guys like, you know, your work, Lester, Mike's work, Adam Wilder's work, if you study the work, you sh- you can count the different effects. You can almost go, okay, yeah. I see that there's one, two, three, four, five, six, ten layers because you can identify every single one of them by the effect that's being portrayed. Whereas somebody who's less skilled, you, their work is just kind of muddy. You know, it's that thing Chris was talking about where, where the, yeah. you know, it just sort of disappears. And it, it it's just down to time and execution, I, I, right? I mean, and anybody can do that. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, 
I always like to say that no matter how good you are or how bad you think you are, at some point, everybody's model looks the same. You know, there's a certain point where somebody says, I'm not particularly good, but there's a certain point where um, the best man, in, the best modeler in the world, Martin, Martin, Night Shift, his model will look the same as, I mean, it's just in, either it's just in its base primer or he's done a few weathering effects, that his model will look the same as what some guy might think, right, my model's finished. So now that means that that guy there can just build with a few more layers on top of that or X amount of layers on top of that, and that's how he can start to get better. Um, and, and I do think sometimes the, the model in press don't quite show that as much as what they should do. Mm-hmm. A lot of years ago now, um, I always remember th- there was an article in military modeling done by a guy called Ian Suckermore, and he'd done, um, it was like a Northumbrian warrior with a horse. But there was, y- you know, you see all the step-by-step pictures. There was one picture where it just showed him where he'd, he'd just basically done the very basic blocking in of colors. And it wasn't a fantastic picture, but I just thought, hang on a minute, my figures look like that. So he's done what I can do, but he's just done more. He's just added a little bit more. So if I can get to that base, I can learn how to do a little bit more. Then I can learn how to do a little bit more than that. Where sometimes, for right reasons or the wrong reasons, those photographs maybe don't get published as much as what they should do. And again, with social media, people want to publish the pictures of the all the fantastic effects that they've done or good effects that they've done um, and I'm just as guilty but you don't really see these very basic pictures that you think well yeah yeah I, I can understand that's the building block to make a better weathered model speaking as an editor I can tell you why that is that they don't get published there's a number of reasons the first of the most common is that people don't take them yeah, okay, yeah. When enough. you're in the zone and you're modelling, you do something and then you do something and then you do something. And it's uh, it's it's a discipline that you've got and a lot of people have got, but not everyone has got, to stop constantly and take more photos. Yeah, yeah. So no, I that. totally agree, yeah. And yeah. also, conceptually, you have to understand that that's what you're doing, you're illustrating, because a lot of people think you write articles, you don't. You photograph articles, the writing is kind of a, you know, I used to get letters telling me I had too many photos and articles and not enough text. <laughs> that backwards, mate. I always say you should be able to read an article without the text. The yeah, photo yeah. should tell you the whole story. And unfortunately, not everyone takes them. Mm-hmm. The second reason, obviously, is space. That you know, All editors are constricted by space. Um, so if, you, if you've got a, that kind of story you want to tell, then perhaps make that one, that one technique the focus of your article. Yeah, really. and make that the meat of it and then shorten the bit before and the bit after yeah. the third reason is because people don't always send captions for their photos quite often you have to pick the photos you want right? Yeah. and if an editor can't tell the difference between one photo and the next because it's only a very subtle thing unless you caption it and point out to him you need to put both those in so if you want that in your articles anyone listening, I don't mean you Lester I mean anyone listening, if you want that kind of process in your articles make sure you photograph all of it Make sure you caption all of it and make sure that you send all of that in a clearly understandable format to the editor. Because, you know, that stuff's great and they'll use it. I'm sure they will. But you need to photograph it and you need to caption it. But, yeah, but, but the point I was really getting across was, you know, that, that, that people can see 
from that basic how basic that model looks is that's where you know that they might be at that stage but that's how you know how you yeah. can get better because that's that Everybody's looks the same at, at that one, you know, at a certain point in in the in the build. And that's really important to understand because a lot of times, I think I know I have trouble with it, and I'm sure other guys do. They know it's not there, but they don't understand what it is it's missing. Yeah, and if they yeah. can see it, like you say, that, that that's at a stage in someone else's, and then there are these other things you can do afterwards, or this at least this way of thinking about it, that there are what things could you do, then that's really adding value to anyone that reads it and they can see that and they can see where they are, like you say, along that path. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of guys don't kind of, um, you know, a lot of guys kind of don't really see that, that they want to be, they want to be producing all these fantastic effects and everything, but the, the kind of think, well, I, I can't do this, but yeah, they can. It's just having them kind of base levels to work from and then go up the next level, and the next level, and the next level. It, it, it's only it, it's as much as you want to do yourself you know if somebody builds a model they paint it and they're, they're happy with it brilliant you know fantastic if somebody wants to build and do 25 30 steps beyond that if that's what they enjoy doing again you know fantastic everybody everybody's got to get something of value out of the hobby um and you can't really you know you can't preach to people say you've got to do this you've got to do that as long as people do what they're happy with that that's really what the hobby's all about i think this makes me think and and chris you may tell me why this is a terrible idea and david parker may may be cringing as well if he's listening to this but what makes me think that what would be really i'm cool, sure he's not <laughs> what makes me think would be really cool is is like going back to that hatch on the on the sherman that we were talking about earlier is if you could convince a model maker of your caliber, Lester, to take that hatch at the beginning. That, that even though you could sort of say, okay, that's hairspray chipping, that's the step that I did right there. You know that when you're in the middle of doing it, that there's a bunch of steps. There's a bunch of decisions. Yeah. Like yeah. like you started, I'm sure you st- you know you started with sort of a, a you know you had you had black paint on top of green paint. And you started the chipping and you started pecking at it and you, you sort of removed and you started in a, like you talked about how you started along the, 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 the gap between the hatch and the, and the, and the edge of the, of the opening. And, and you yeah. started to develop that and you started to get a sort of a shape to the pattern and you thought, okay, well, maybe I need to move some chips over here to the left a little bit. And maybe this one needs to look a little bit more triangular. And, okay, now I've kind of got the basis of the pattern. Now I'm going to start to expand. And, and, you know, there's a lot of decisions that you make there that are really hard to communicate. And that's the stuff that really creates your style and creates that level of authenticity and I almost think it would be cool if somebody could do an article where it's a series of photos of nothing but that square inch and identify, you know, along the way. Okay, so I got to this point, and here's why I decided now to go from that point to the next point. And I'm sure there's a ton of reasons why that's never going to get published, but I know for myself, when I'm trying to learn from guys like you, that's what I want to see because it's the only way I can get in your head. Yeah, I, I agree what you're saying, and I think um, especially these days we have a lot more stuff on the internet, and it, it's sometimes if you read something in print, 
you can understand it, but sometimes you just need to see real time what paint mix, basically what kind of brush they use and how thin the paint is, what your preparation is before you kind of do that that operation. You know, you say, oh, this is it before and this is it after. But it's it's actual seeing people do it, almost like a live demonstration. That 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 sometimes I think that that's a a really really good way of sort of um understanding how things work. It is, but even that falls short. I mean, like even you know even as good as Martin is with his videos, I have you know and and Mike does them too, and maybe he's doing it more with his live stream now. But it's just almost. It's just—it's almost uh, it never happens where I really feel like somebody is, you know, just breaking it down at that super minute level that encapsulates yeah, yeah. those those artistic decisions on the fly. And I know it's hard because you mm. know it's it's hard to even stop and think about it while you're doing it, much less stop and document it. Actually, it, it probably would get published. It's just someone needs to suggest it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Well done. <laughs> Especially because you could probably do it in two pages and editors love two-page articles. No, no, yeah. I mean, it's something that's quite, you know, quick and easy reference that, that doesn't, you know, you don't get bored looking at it, but you can kind of understand the principles. Then you can expand it to what you want to do with it sort of thing. Yeah, it's not, not a bad idea that way. Well done. The photography would be pretty easy because, you know, it's oh, like, yeah. like I said, it's just basically one square inch. Yeah, yeah, one 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 small area to sort of look at. No, no, it's, it's a good idea, and and I sort of think that anything that can sort of pass on what you've learned and what people can learn is great. You know, I, I I love the fact that people want to sort of share the techniques and share you know share what the thoughts are behind them as well. It's it's not just a matter of having a technique; it's kind of understanding why you want why you like that technique why you use it in certain areas and, and it's sort of explaining it to and, and you kind of get an understanding of what the modeler has in mind and what he's trying to portray by understanding that point of why i need to use this certain technique here but i won't use that certain technique on another part of the model i'll use something else and, and it's it's difficult to kind of point the print but it's quite easy to sort of sit down and show somebody yeah, it, a lot of it's intuitive. You're, you're doing things because of your accumulated skill set. Yeah. And you know what to do. Yeah. So, I mean, something like that where you just hit record while you're sitting there, you know, hit record on a device while you're sitting there working on this and you basically speak out loud, kind of free flow, all the things that are all the reasons you're making these decisions and, and stuff like that would be. I think revealing for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, and and sometimes if you do think about things too much, it starts to become hard because you start to second guess what you're doing. Where I've found a lot of the time I've sat at the bench and thought, right, how am I going to do this? And I've sat and sat and sat and thought, nah, it's not happening. And then the next night I'll come in and just literally sit down and not think about it, just do it. And you kind of, it's almost like your muscle memory does it for you. Yeah, and the fact that you've probably subconsciously been working on how you think you might do that while you're going about your everyday tasks. So a day later you come. <laughs> yeah. I've got, you want to see how many pictures I've got on my phone of various oil stains around the factory and this kind of thing <laughs> and taking pictures of this yeah. and taking pictures of that. When, when we're on holiday, um, the, the wife's saying, let's take some pictures of the kids on the beach. And I'm saying, yeah, but look at this, 
Look at this excavator here. Look at the tracks on it. See how polished they are. I'll, I'll, t- I'll take a load of <laughs> pictures. Crash of... barrier. Let me. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Very. I've got um, a full album of various um, decrepitated buildings in Spain for reference, sort of thing. <laughs> which which I've one? Got one of concrete textures. Oh, oh yeah. It's something I have trouble imagining. So I've yeah. got a whole big folder of concrete with various stains on it. Nice. So that when I do concrete, nice. I can try and make it look like concrete. I like it. I'm, I'm yeah, my wife's like, "Why are you photographing that floor?" <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And you stand. Yeah, my wife doesn't even ask anymore. <laughs> no, she's just like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. And and you, you're always you're constantly looking at details when you go places. You know, you're the kind of guy that yeah. um, you, you go into somebody's house and they're showing you this brand new kitchen, and you're the guy that's looking at the joints on the skirting boards or the joint where the the yeah. uh, <laughs> where the window meets the sort of um the the wall kind of thing because you're thinking. Yeah, yeah, that, that's an interesting kind of effect and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I do that a lot. I think I think we all do. I think we all, um, yeah, all modelers are, are quite, um, even if they don't realise it, they are quite observant sort of people. They do, they do kind of look at things in a slightly skewed manner to everybody else. Actually, I think I wouldn't say all. I think that's what separates the good ones, uh, the best ones from the good ones. It's the ability to observe and i'm not so sure i think it is partly self-taught you can learn to do it but also i think some people are much better at it than others and i think you're exceptionally good at observation uh certainly more than i am or or a lot of people i see and i think that's one of the things that makes your work so good maybe maybe it's because i'm just thinking about modeling too much chris maybe i should start <laughs> maybe start well thinking i do about... for a living i think about it all day my models don't look like yours you, you have got a very good eye start thinking about real life as opposed to what i'm doing my models. <laughs> but that, that would that be in the retirement home that'd well. be too much like growing up wouldn't it so i don't want to be doing things yeah. like that <laughs> but no 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 um i i just think that um I think if you can if you can see an effect and you can kind of break it down and um, recreate it, that that that's a really good thought process to go through. And and I think a lot of people sort of um, once they sort of understand how how that thought process works, you know, if you see something that's um, oh, if you think like like a tire, for instance, say that that's got dust on it, a certain pattern of the dust. That then just go and try see see if you can recreate it. Don't don't do what everybody else has done and take the reference picture from somebody else's model. Try and try and see what you can see in real life and try and recreate that. That that, that that's probably where I, where I think is a lot of people's maybe's failings the wrong word, but maybe not aware that to, to let them progress. To sort of looking at what they think they have this envision of what they think is right, but they're not looking at real life to make. To, to reproduce that in a model. Well, I think if you if you're trying to reproduce something you've seen in real life on a model, you understand the logic of how it happened. Yeah, yeah. By if you're successful, or you know, if you if you're close, then you you do understand the logic of, of how it happened. And I think that's something that the best the people who are best at weathering. Do, really do have a good intuitive understanding of is the, they can look at something and, and understand the logic of of what they're seeing and they can use that logic to repre- recreate it logically on a model yeah you know? yeah and, and, again layers yeah yeah because i think some people as well um 
that they have a, a specific effect that they want to kind of show on a model. You know, that, that, that's, that um, weathering effect is what caught their eye in the first place that made them want to make that model or make that subject. And sometimes what happens is they get overfixed by wanting to rush to get to producing that, that one effect. And sometimes when you do that, you can see that, the, that there's not enough kind of layers there before this effect they've been waiting all the, for the whole model to create, being a winter whitewash scheme or being um, some battle damage. But you, you've got to do the full process and then incorporate this effect that you want to into it and make it look part of it, not the actual main attraction, if, if you follow that kind of that sort of logic. Well, if that that effect is like the the exclamation point at the end of the sentence. Yeah. But you still have to have the sentence yeah. for that exclamation point to make sense. Yeah, exactly, kind of thing. And um, I think you know, I'm, I'm not again. I, I, I'm not trying to uh, decry other people's work. You know, I think that any any level of work that people want to do is brilliant. You know, whatever they, whatever you want to do, it's just you, you've got to sort of be a little bit self-motivated and want to kind of push yourself a little bit more and, and thinking right i've done this can i do the next one a little bit better or can i get this effect i sort of got somewhere near on my last model can i make it a little bit better from that side of things yeah i think that's what we all try to do yeah you know? yeah yeah and i think sometimes we pick our subject in order to push us in a different direction and or push a skill set that whether you've seen somebody else do it effectively or whether the photos inspired your desire to build uh, you know that subject in that setting like i think we we pick what we want to do to to push ourselves yeah yeah you you, you look at a, um, a photograph or, or, a, or a model that you want to build and think yeah uh, i've got a master say zipper it or i've got a master um wet mud effects i've got to try and master um dry dust not 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 heavy cake dust just dry dust or i want to try and do something like you've done with um tracy with where's the, the the weather effects are minimal but you're trying to still get that message across and tell that story uh, and and it, it's it's like a little ch it's a challenge but it, it's such a good feeling when you kind of gets even just get somewhere near um achieving that kind of challenge i mean i've, I've got I've got quite a lot of aircraft that, that I, at some point I want to start having a look at, um, just purely and simply for the weather inside of things. Huh? You'll never start one. There'll always be another tank. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. That answers my question of if you were ever going to explore other genres, because I only know you as an armor modeler. and That goes way back. Hey, he's done Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, I've done a couple of Star Wars. I just missed it. My first introduction to, to your work, Lester, was in one of Mike's books. And so it's just what I've always thought of you as, as an armor modeler. So that's cool to hear. And, you know, and there is a lot of cool science fiction stuff out there just waiting for your touch. Yeah, well, I've got a Millennium Falcon to start at some point. That, that, that's that's on the build list. The 172nd scale one. And I've got, um, aircraft-wise, I've got, U.S. Navy planes, three three seventy second scale Tomcats, two forty eight scale Tomcats, one thirty fifth scale, one thirty second scale Tomcat, um, a four, two forty eight scale, two forty eight scale Hornets. Um, yeah, yeah, I've got them to do <laughs> at some point. <laughs> but again, it, it's it's one of those things. I, I've I've done planes for a long, long time, so. That's a challenge as well. So I kind of have to sort of look at how people have done planes and sort of adapt it to doing it. You know, um, again, it's about the weathering on them. I think it all comes down to weathering. 
but you know there's there's a lot of things I need to learn about um decals painting cockpits sub assemblies you know I can't I can't stick everything together on a plane and just paint it in one go unfortunately mind you I could try it I suppose the number the number one thing about decals is just don't do them if you don't have to. <laughs> get 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 yourself a get yourself a silhouette portrait cutter and make those masks. Make, make your own kind of thing. Well, yeah. again, that, that that that's that that's another challenge, isn't it? Sort of thing. But the, the problem is there's there's so many good armor subjects that you haven't even touched on, and you know there's like. There's so much good modern stuff. There's so much good World War Two stuff. Allied, Axis. You've never had such a good choice of subjects, you know. And and it, it can be a little bit a little bit mind boggling at times. Yeah, well, so with that being said, I'm I'm leaning more and more towards doing my first tank for real uh, soon. And uh, so I, I'm curious because I think I'm going to do a Sherman. The uh, the Ming kit gets a lot of good reviews. I got guys telling me that's a good one to pick. But my question is the black and green one that you did. I don't know what is the specifics were. Um, it, it, was that pretty common? Because I love that black and green. Would you would you find one of those in Italy in you know like late forty four for example? Uh, to be honest, I don't know that much about Shermans. Um, yeah, I mean that, that if you're going to do a British one, the British use quite a lot of the. Um, the the black kind of was it Mickey Mouse camouflage? Chris? What was the black and green a, a unique to the not on unique to not British? on Sherman's that was an American right. thing, uh, American or Polish actually the Polish did it as well. Yeah, yeah, that, but, that's um, what I'm thinking. Of, well, yeah. uh, Operation Cobra in um, Normandy there was there were black and green Shermans. Yeah, seventy six ones. Yeah, because yeah. a lot of the um, the the the, the, the easy eights. Uh, were actually painted black and green in the field. Some of them had the black stripes put on in the field. Because that one I've done is, um, it, it, it's got the extra armor. It's like, a, if you look on the front, it's got a, a, a glacis plate cut off a, a damaged Sherman stuck on there. So that had been repainted. And while the field engineers were there, that's when they put the black camouflage over the top. Um, because that, that Sherman actually started off as a, um, a demonstration model. I was going to take the Spain with me. So it, it it never really it it wasn't really started as a a full on project as such. It was just something that um, I kind of needed. I needed a model to take with me to do a like um like a two day clinic, you know, to show people how, how my techniques and everything. Um, and I thought, right, I always felt that was kind of when you take little plaques and things or things that you've sort of half prepared. I always thought that people maybe don't get to see the full layers before you do that. So I thought, right, why, why don't I kind of finish your model as if it is a proper project? Then when I take it away, I can show people how the weather and everything works over all the scratches and chippings and everything. Um, and then obviously with the COVID side of things, I, I couldn't really make the trip. So that was where we ended up basically finishing the model as a, as a sort of finished project. So it was quite a bit of a... It, it was sort of... Snuck on, snuck up on the blind side, I suppose. Really, of me that one. Well, it's beautiful, and I love the that. I, I, my impression is that there's a lot of that really light colored limestone dirt in the in the Italian theater, and I love the way that looks with green. So that's that's why I was asking because I I kind of like yeah. that combination. There is yeah. Normandy too. Dude, okay, cool. Because I I love that. Yeah. Any anytime I can do a multicolor camo scheme, that's fun. 
but I just didn't know if yeah, that was there's, legit. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's plenty out there. I mean, I don't know what you guys are like, but um, I tend to get right into a subject while I'm building it, uh, and I kind of focus on that kind of specific thing. So I'll know a lot about that Easy 8 Sherman that I've built in, that I've just finished in that kind of um, German, in Germany 1945 kind of genre. And then when I move on to the next project, I don't forget all that stuff, but it's kind of put into the library. And then I'm kind of reading up and looking at a lot of reference pictures on, on the one that I'm working on now. It's, it's just, it's just the way I work. You know, it's, um, it, you kind of, you kind of focus in on something to, to keep that, that, that project going. Same here. Do you only work on one project at a time, Les? Yeah, yeah, one at a time. It, it, it's hard. It, it costs. I envy you. <laughs> well, I, I suppose you, you have different constraints, Chris. But I've I, I found that yeah. if I try to do more than one project at a time, it, it, they just sort of all gel into one. You know, I, I, I kind of I start off with all good intentions of building two models, say, and then there's always one that will get more attention than the other one. And, and I always find it hard to sort of break that off and, and share share the actual work on, on the two of them. Um, and I also find that if you're painting two models at the same time, it, it, it's the both start to look very similar, like you're chipping and everything. Yeah. You know, you, 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 it's almost like a production line rather than a individual you, thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, a, a, a long time ago, I always remember seeing um, a guy had done a Oh, an LVT is it an LVT at Saipan? I think it was Saipan. You know the blue um, with the Stuart turret on. Is, yeah. is it an LVT? LVT? Anyway, I can't remember. LVT five. That's it. Yeah, yeah. So, so the guy had done that, and and it was a lovely model. And what he'd done is, is he put like a sand wash over it, so it, to to represent like the sand on it. But I think what he was doing at the same time, he must have been building Tiger um, and another model. I can't remember what it was now. But I think what he done is he's decided to put use this same sand wash on all three models, so they all look very similar. You know, you, you couldn't see this one's meant to be in the Pacific and this one's meant to be at Kursk, but they've all got the same kind of weathering on them. Where I always fear that that that's what would end I would end up doing. Where I'm sort of thinking I've just done a wash on this, I'll just put a wash on this one while I'm at it, kind of thing. Um, so I always try to stick just to one project. It's Good in one way because you, you kind of focus on it. Bad in another respect because your, your production rate is just terrible. <laughs> Maybe two a year, three a year if you're lucky kind of thing. You're more likely to finish it as well because when you're in a really deep, involved project, if you you hit a stumbling block and you stop and you work on something else, it's far more likely to end up on the shelf of shame. Whereas if you only have one project at a time, yeah, and you make yeah. yourself carry on through the the stumbles, it'll get finished, and you'll you'll actually finish more of these great projects. Yeah, that, that, that that's that's what I tend to find. Um, I mean, I've, I have got a shelf of shame, as, as you well know, Chris. I've got a model that I should have painted for you a few years back, and I do apologise about that. <laughs> it just um, we were going to go for this lovely blue um, Christian uh, SLA camouflage scheme, but. Everybody else decided, and his wife decided to do one. So, do you know, I didn't think of that. That's a good point. It would have been just, yeah, another one. Yeah, in the sea of blue. Yeah, yeah, because that—that's one of the biggest disadvantages of working on one model at a time. That um, you, you kind of 
if you finish that model, say, say you might start something German and a new German model comes on the market, you find that everybody's doing the same camouflage pattern that you've already started. So you've just got to keep going on, going on with it. And when I was doing this um, SLA uh, T55 that Chris built, basically when we went to scale model challenge that year, I think there was about four or five of them in the same competition. Well, speaking of finishing things up, we should probably think about wrapping this one because we're going on two hours now and we've probably okay. probably about worn probably about worn Lester out. No, no, no. Like I said, just, as long as people get something from it, that's all, you know, I don't want to just think Actually I think people oh, are gonna get yeah. a lot from this. Yeah, re- really good. Yeah, more more technique focused than some of our other episodes, and that's that's good. Good stuff. Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, I mean, yeah, you kind of unraveled some mysteries and, uh, and again, got me thinking about, all right, maybe I'll try acrylics and <laughs> see if that's a little quicker. I mean, the, the I'm going to post the these process... guys some washing up liquid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've got Dawn detergent. Okay? Chris, Chris, Come just, on. just what you call no, no. it. Fairy's the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we sh- should just bottle it and sell it, Chris. That's what we should do. Like future, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just rename it. Yeah. Got to be something really technical sounding, you know, like dust base or <laughs> surface, enhance- yeah. surface enhancing dust base. Yeah, dust know. base displacer. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Model makers <laughs> will eat that shit up. <laughs> No. Line, line that, that's the, the problem they might do <laughs> just need to put it in eyedropper uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. acrylic paint relaxer <laughs> oh yeah there you relaxer go. oh I like that yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no I mean seriously just try acrylics Tracy they are people have this thing that they're not forgiven they are it, it, as long as you if you water them down enough you can wash them um to a certain point, you can even dry brush them. Um, what I have found, though, if I want to dry brush acrylics like I would do enamels, um, I just tend to put a, a coat of varnish on and then dry brush over the varnish, and then it stops the actual paint soaking into the, to the base layer kind of thing. And if you do that, you, you can dry – well, not quite dry brush. Dry brush is um, – dry brush kind of implies with a big brush going over a lot, over a lot of detail. Where I think it's more a case of almost what I call scrub brushing, where you've got quite a small brush, like um, a brush that's, that's past its best, and you just chop it off and make it almost like a stippling brush, and then you can almost like kind of scrub the scrub small areas of the surface as if you're dry brushing it, and that can give you really good, nice little tonal variations, as opposed to the the good old days where the whole idea was you just write across each panel. And sort of dry brush the, the entire panel, catching the edges and things like that with white, and get that frosty look. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that, that, that's the one. Yeah, you know, you 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 you've seen that before. Yeah, I've, I've seen that a few times. Is that times, how you got yeah. that dark green edge on the front of your Sherman? Yeah, yeah, just, just like just, a warm dark edge on it. Yeah, yeah, just 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 basically, um, it, it's it's an old sort of um, number three brush or number two brush. And when it's worn, you know, it's, it's obviously lost its point sort of thing. Just literally chop chop the point off so you've still got a decent amount of bristle to it. And then you're almost, um, it's like dry brushing, but there's, again, there's next to no brush on, no paint on the brush. And you're just kind of scrubbing that area, that, that, that specific area. And it, it, it's quite a good effect. You know, you can almost get that lovely, um, 
dark polished effect around the hatch. I feel like a lot of the, I mean, the technique is the same with oil as acrylic, but now I sort of understand how to push those acrylics the way I would push oils. And, and I'm actually wondering if it will speed me up at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oils are great. Uh, I, I, I just maybe it's not, I've just kind of gone down a route where I've liked acrylics. I, I don't know. Sometimes you try some, you try a paint brand. Uh, and you, or you try a type of paint and you just think, yeah, this works for me. You know, some people can get fantastic results with oils. Some people still use enamels. A lot of the top painters on figure side, especially still use enamels, which I was quite surprised. Mike Blank, he paints in enamels still. He use, does use some acrylics now, but mostly he paints in enamels, as far as I understand. And I just think that you, you sort of find that you're comfortable with that paint medium. Uh, and you sort of, once you're comfortable with it, you, then you can quite happily push it to what you need to do with it. Maybe I should start looking at oils a bit more. I, mean, I do use oils for washes and basically pin washes. Uh, but I just think, as you say there, acrylics kind of I can sort of put an effect down and then lay another effect on it quite quickly. And I think I like the fact of the opacity of the uh, acrylic, where oils, you know, they're, they're great for, they, they can be almost translucent. But an acrylic, you can almost get something quite solid straight away without having to build it up and let it dry, build it up, let it dry. It's there more or less straight away. Well, again, it's about knowing your materials and that if you know your materials and how they work, then that's not a hindrance to you sort of creating what you have in your in your brain on the surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it's it's like anything. Just just try it. Try it and see what you find with it. That, that That's where I always find it. Um, yeah. I, I do struggle a little bit with um, doing test models. Some people do test models or say I'll do some practice models and I tend to kind of just go straight into the model I'm working on. So you you, you kind of got two options. It doesn't work or you've got to make it work. And I think that sometimes can be a little bit of a good motivator. Yeah. Or you can always use the bottom of the model or behind the road wheels. You know, yeah, yeah, I find that yeah. that's a try, good place to Try that you know. out first kind of thing. But yeah, again, um, thank thank you very much for having me on. I, I do feel um, quite honoured to be to have been invited to um, come on the podcast, and um, I thank hope you like giving us so much of your time. Yeah, well, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thank, yeah. thank you very much. No, thank I, you, I do that's, appreciate. Absolutely. It. Yeah, thank Thanks you very for much for spending the time. Friends, we'd like to take just a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Our Patreon supporters help us pay for hosting, distributing, and recording this show, and we really do appreciate their support. If you'd like to support the show and become a Patreon member, you can click on the Patreon link in the show notes, or you can go to patreon.com and search for the Sprue Cutters Union. Today, I'd like to thank our ongoing patrons, Mark C., Devin, George, Alvaro, Flip, Adrian, what's up, boys? Billy, Austin, Owen, Alexander, Marcus, Brad, John, Mike, Eric, Mike W, Joel, Carlos, Chris, Dennis, and Mark G. I'd also like to welcome our new Patreons, Andy, Chris, Carl, and Chris L. Guys, we really do appreciate the support. Patreon helps us get this podcast out to the people who seem to really enjoy it. Uh, for that and all those things, we are very grateful. Thank you so much.
And don't forget, the Sprue Cutters Union is just one of a number of superb scale modelling podcasts. There are too many to list, but go to modelpodcasts.com to find a full list of all these great shows. Fantastic interview with Lester. Uh, I know that I got a lot out of that. Uh, I know that Chris and Will did too, as we've been talking about that a little bit since we've done the interview. Yeah, Lester's a machine, and you just have to look at his work and look at uh, what an infinitely detailed place he takes his weathering to. It's uh, it, it it does sound uh, as as he's explaining what he does like he's just breezing through this. But what he is probably maybe a little too modest to to toot his own horn about is just how exquisite and layered these finishes are and how everything is considered. You know, the the wear around a hatch, uh the placement of mud. Like it's it's really flawless work. If you if you study the work, the story of the vehicle and the story that he's trying to tell makes a lot of sense. Every little detail is considered. We've had other guys on the show who kind of do the same thing with their work. And it's it's the sign of a master, you know? It's the sign of somebody who takes the craft very, very seriously. And Lester definitely does. And we were super privileged to have him on and have him chat with us. And we're going to get him back at another point to keep talking and keep digging through his brain. Yeah, I loved it. I, that's this. This is I think going to end up being one of our most technical episodes. I mean, I love talking shop, and Lester was super forthcoming and just really generous, uh, you know, with with answering our questions and and describing everything that he's doing. And I, I think it's going to be. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of value, and it's going to be one of those kind of episodes. You know, some of, some of our listeners joke about having to pull over and take notes. Well, this might be one of those. But I would also recommend listening to the episode while looking at the specific pieces that we talk about because it really is the kind of thing that that you can only truly appreciate at a very close view. You know, because you're getting into the subtlety of the shape and distribution of chips, you know, where he's using different tones and and to to what Tracy was saying it's like there's just nothing out of place at all in fact i i was talking to one of my fellow smcg uh administrators and we were talking about you know look and sort of comparing views of lester's work with some other work and my point was look this is the difference between something that's really pretty good and something that is legit world class and if that's where you want to go with your work, this is the kind of thing you got to study. The word that came to mind for me was meticulous. That no detail is too small. No um, yeah. labor is is uh, not worth doing. Like you're saying, Tracy, he layers it. Something that didn't come across in the interview is how long it takes him, how many hours he puts into every model. He's not a one model a month guy. No, he's, he's not. a maybe two model a year guy. Yeah. And, you know, he puts as much into the painting, uh, the building, as he does the painting, and he spends months on them because you can't do that kind of layering quickly. Yeah, and, and there's a reason that every time Lester finishes a model, it's on the cover of AFE Modeler. You know, it's it's that kind of work. Yeah. One of the things that I really liked, uh, Will kind of touched on it as well. Like he's really 
he's not guarding any secrets, you know? He's not uh, proprietary about what he's doing. It's not Lester's little secrets. Like, he, he, he'll he explain anything you want to know because he wants everyone's models to get better if his advice helps them. I've definitely stolen some things from him and acknowledge it, and, and his response is always, well, I'm glad you found it helpful. Like, that's just the kind of guy he is. He wants... He wants anything that he says that can be helpful and can help you make a better model. He wants that, you know. He's not an egotist either, you know. He doesn't. I mean, when we done the interview, it's almost like he was surprised to be asked. Yeah, you know. Yeah, he, like you should, I don't know why. Because, well, know. He's very humble. But when you talk, we meet him at a show, and you talk to him about modeling. He'll give you as much time as you. He's so enthusiastic about talking to you yeah, about it. Yeah. You know, he doesn't hold anything back at all. He's humble and he's enthusiastic. The, the other thing that he brought up, which I, I don't think I've ever really heard another modeler kind of look at it this way. And I thought, man, it's a, it's such an encouraging thing for someone to hear is when he said that at a certain point, your model looks just like his, whether it's after the paint or the initial weathering, like at a certain point, your model looks just like his model. And that's that's a really important thing to to take away from that is for me I think that you can take one more step and then the next time you have a model uh, you know if you take one more step with your weathering and the next time you're you're at a different place than he is but also at the same place you know the, you can progress incrementally it just it kind of puts everybody on a level playing field you know it puts the legends on the same field as as anybody else. You know, if your fundamentals are good, construction is good, then at that point, your model is looking the same as Mike Rinaldi's. You know, it's just it's just the next step that's different. So he's easy. I think being encouraging of people to just take the next step. And if it's just one more step, great. Then that's one more step. And then the next time you build a model, take one more step further. You know, that's what I took it from anyway. But it was it was a really uh, uh that kind of equalization between really well-established modelers and people who build for fun or people who don't consider themselves on the same level. It was really interesting to hear him say like, I recognize that we're, you know, your model and my model are at the same level at a certain point. Yeah. That's the way I took it too. I thought it was just overall super informative and super encouraging. And I think fits in well with what we've been doing and what we're going to keep doing. I think that interview represented a lot of what we tried to do with this podcast. I mean, right from the start, we wanted to get in really deep and add value to people. And people say, well, it's a visual medium. What's the point in talking about it? But I can't imagine anyone listening to that interview and not coming away with ideas, fired up to try stuff out and enthused to, to build a model, basically. Yeah. We had an email from Duncan, uh, Alan and the guys at IPMS Hamilton. And uh, a lot of people may know there's a thing called the Musaru Cup, which I think was originally between the Scale Model podcast and On the Bench, hence Moose Canada, Roo Kangaroo Australia. Yeah. Uh, and there's an annual competition between the modelling podcasts to produce the best model. Um, we missed it last year. We I think we started our first episode like a week after they, <laughs> they arranged it all or something. So we missed out. But we're going to be involved next year. Thank you to the guys at IPMS Hamilton for that. Now, um, IPMS Hamilton run probably 
uh, the best model show in Canada. Other model shows can write in and tell me off, uh, which is Heritage Con. And like all shows, they've had a bit of trouble with it under COVID, but it is on for 2022 uh, with Heritage Con 14. It's going to be held at the club's home base, the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum in Hamilton, Ontario. I have to say, I've always wanted to go to Canada, and part of me really wishes I could go to this show. But uh, it's going to be on March the 27th. Uh, and unfortunately, I think probably with the UK, it's going to be a bit difficult to travel then. But if you can make it, you really should go uh, to Heritage Con on March the 27th in Ontario at the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. They're using it. They've, they've changed things up a bit this year. I've heard this a lot from shows. You may remember, you know, when um, we talked about shows before, we were talking about uh, online registration, and it seems a lot of clubs are picking up on that now. Something that SMC has been doing for a while, and Heritage Con has got it as well. So, if you want to register, uh, go to www.heritagecon.com, and the Warplane Museum you can find at www.warplane.ca. So. Um, Good luck, guys, with that show. Keep us informed of any updates on it. I hope you're listening. The Moosaroo Cup for this year is going to be judged on March the 12th, so it'll be interesting to find out uh, who's going to win that one. And they've asked us for ideas, so we need to get together about a subject for next year. So does everybody build the same thing in this? This year was a Gundam. It was a Gundam, and everybody has to build the same one. Yeah, but it's a different one, each of the... No, I think everybody got the same no, same got kit. One. Same kit. Pretty sure same kit. I could be wrong, but I, they got a different I, one. I'm telling you, I know they got a different one. Yeah, this just shows. Obviously, anyway. we don't know what the fuck the Musaru Cup is or what's <laughs> going have, on. We have no fucking idea. All we know, all so we, let's cut all this we bit. know, yeah, no, yeah, that's yeah, good. Yeah. All we know is that everybody gets to build whatever it is and turn it in, and then and then those guys judge it. That's all we really know. Yeah. Oh well, we'll find out soon enough. Anyway, then the only other thing. I want to talk about is uh next show uh the theme of that show is going to be mailbag and we want you to send in your questions for the three of us anything you want us to give our opinion on um rant about anything at all just write in to sprucuttersunion at gmail.com and uh and let us know and we'll pick that up if you've already written in I think a few of you have with technical questions. Don't worry. We'll be getting to them on the next episode. Sounds good. All right, folks, we are going to wrap things up uh, so that Will can go eat lunch. Yeah. I got to go take care of some work stuff. Chris is going to have some dinner. Yeah. It's been our, it's been our usual rattle trap of an episode, but, but I think it'll be, I think it'll be all, it'll all be fine in the end. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. We're going to get out of here. We'll talk to you next time. Until then, happy modeling. Adios, bitches. Keep scratching. Shut up! (laughs) (laughs) If we can just if we can just get Tracy to to sign us out. If everybody would shut the fuck up.